is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirginia. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DeVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. We are in Studio B. I'm frustrated. Alan's frustrated. I know that all of you are frustrated. We are going to spend this episode assigning blame. Coaches, players, scheme, personnel, recruiting. We'll get your prep for Vandy. And we'll have a basketball primer, as we do every single year. Let's go. With Justin Seitz, our basketball insider but first if you like the content like us on facebook follow us on twitter become a patron on patreon we love those donos each and every week you too can join the illustrious list of our donors on patreon we had some new ones this past week coming in with a large dono joseph para thank you welcome aboard medium donos mike bryant mimo and kevin stegan and then small donos ranis limberte and Rafael Fernandez sitting Great on the throne. On yeah, list. good names, strong names, really. And then sitting on the throne, of course, Alexander Leventhal, the man, the myth, the legend, the king of the jungle. No one can catch Alexander. Maybe one day Alexander will look at you. Until then, you are the man. All right, Alan, a couple cool things happened this past weekend before the game. Because during the game, things went a little sideways. Before the game, I got a chance to play in a golf tournament, the Danny Warfel Desire Cup Tournament at Pontevedra. And when I was there, uh, I get my clubs out of the car. And then there is the cart guy that's coming to get my stuff. And he asked my name. And he immediately says, oh, James D. Virgilio? He's like, I know you. I love your podcast. I want to be an NFL scout. And so and so, I, I think, you know, it, that's the day that started this. And this, this was great. I know you're listening. So it was great to meet you and talk with you. And that continued throughout the day as I met several of you at the golf tournament, which was really, really cool. And then on Saturday, I'm waiting in line for the stadium, and I meet Drew and Cooper, who are in front of me. And they turn around hearing my voice. I've never met them either. And they just say, hey, you're from the Gator Nation Football Podcast. That's awesome stuff, guys. It's Alan the buttery voice, James. Both, they, yeah, they right, It's recognizable Alan, everywhere. We both, we both really enjoy meeting with, with our listeners. So at any time, if you find yourself in a random line at the grocery store at a football game, at a golf tournament, stop by and say hello. We certainly enjoyed it. It's super, super cool talking with you guys. You guys are the best. I also really enjoy how educated our listeners are. As soon as I start talking to them, they know a ton about football, a lot of interesting insights as well. So thanks, guys. That made my weekend. It's just super fun to be out there doing those things. All right, Alan, you and I spent some time delving into pod merch. The responses were good. And now we're trying to finalize our logo. Sam Coppinger, friend of the podcast, friend of our friends, great guy, has been working diligently. We've got something we like. We're trying to find something amazing. Sam is the leader in the clubhouse. We want to open this up to all of you. You can submit your logos to us via any social media form you want. The winner will get a chance to talk about how they come up with the logo and then do some guest picking with us. Game day style. On the pod. So if you live in Gainesville, you can come to the studio. And if you don't, we'll have you on virtually. Don't worry about that. But we are looking to finalize our logo. So if you want some ideas, you want to create something, send them to us. We'd love to... Make your logo the logo for the Gator Nation. Yeah, go all out too. Football you know, podcast. Be unique with it too. I think Sam has done a great job, and just want to throw it out there and see what happens. And so, if yeah, if you got an idea, go for it. 
All right, now let's go into the opening thoughts of this game. Game day experiences, the tailgating, the same. The weather, the same. Cool, gray. The teams in the field, maybe the same. This is sickening. We're going to go through the stats last year, and that's why I'm leading in with this, is it almost felt like Groundhog Day when you kind of thought about what happened in this game in some respects. What was your experience? I know you and I were going to sit together, and we did, and you sat separately. You were sitting on the Georgia side. Yes, on what the Georgia side. What were some of your side. experiences on the Georgia side? Well, it was interesting because, you know, the game was so stilted, stilted, whatever I want to say there. Not a lot of big moments, like uh, just kind of a grinded out kind of game. The Georgia fans around me were nice. They're fine. Uh, I didn't get overly heckled, so that was nice. But I think part of that, there was just not a lot of energy in the stadium because of the way the game played out. A lot of stopping and starting and just a lot of slower movements. I mean, by far the biggest play of the game was the busted coverage, touchdown to Cager late in the game after we had finally scored. But other than that, it just not a lot of big time moments. And so, yeah, it just felt a little blah in there. And it was kind of a blah game. Unfortunately, it should have been a really amazing game, amazing atmosphere potentially. And that it didn't really deliver in that way. Even I wonder if Georgia fans would say the same thing, even though they won. Yeah, it seemed very boring for a long time and boring in the wrong kind of way. Like we're getting dominated, but we're still in the game. So you have some hope. Uh, frustrating in a lot of things that are going on, especially, of course, for you and I and for me. There's things we've been calling for all season long that are coming to a head again in this football game. I know some of you on Twitter mentioned that. Uh, it's good and bad, right? It's good that, hey, we're giving A-plus insight to where you can see what's going on. It's bad and that once you kind of know that there's a better way to go, it's really hard to watch your football team not attempt to yeah, you go. you can't unsee it. In what is the better way? And there's there's a benefit sometimes to being naive. And I, I really had quite an interesting time, Alan, on Sunday reading a wide variety of articles about the Florida football team, reading social media posts, which I typically don't do. But I wanted to gauge it after this loss. Where are people? And it's amazing to me where some people are. You have people on the fire Dan Mullen side. You get the fire Grantham. Bench Kyle Trask. We're better off with Franks. We're better off with Emery. You get these wild opinions that are based in nothingness. Well, born out of frustration, too. And born out of frustration. And I think that's the real key, that this game is frustrating for a wide variety of reasons, even if for no other reason, Alan, this is the result that we both expected before the season started. Right. This is the result Vegas expected. It's the result everyone expected. It's the result the recruiting rankers would tell you you should expect. So why is this so frustrating for Gator Nation? Why do we have in your opinion, these calls for people's heads, benching quarterbacks, doing these things, when it should have been the expected result? Well, we talked about last week the narrative had kind of flipped, that Florida was seen as the trendy pick. Even though Vegas was favoring Georgia, you saw it on game day, three out of four people picked Florida. We felt competent, confident. You had Danny Werfel picking the Gators here on the pod. That you know, kind of switch places with Georgia that we were a little ahead of them momentum wise, and they were going to have to catch up. Now on the way to the game, I said this in the car with driving up with duty and Steve, what up guys? That this game is weird, weird things happen in it. So I, even though I feel good about the way we have been playing, doesn't mean I feel good about the result or confident because 
so many things that happened. They're still a very talented team. I think the way the game played out was strange. And that's why people are so frustrated that it didn't look like we were an inferior team, that we had no shot at being there. If we had made bigger plays and managed the game in a little bit different way, we could have won that game. And not that you ever expect to, you get to blow out Georgia, right? A top 10 Georgia team. That shouldn't be the expectation. But that game was very winnable. And I think fans for the first time could kind of taste the upper echelon of college football. And then that was snatched away on Saturday. Yeah, I think no matter where you are, whether your football education is low and you just watch it and you're trying to make sense of why you lost or you're you know a listener of this podcast and you're an NFL scout and you're you know a football theorist, the more you know, the more frustrating that game was, Alan. Because on one hand, we have an inferior team talent-wise, which we knew, we said so. On the other hand, there were ways we could have won that game. I, I think if you if you look at inefficient management or suboptimal tactics, we probably win one and a half or two times out of 10. If we're perfectly coached, we probably win five times out of 10. I think we were hoping for the perfectly coached and we're riding a hot streak and they're riding a kind of down momentum streak to get ahead and win that game. So maybe you go to six out of 10, which is ultimately what I think, you know, you, Danny and I were, were hoping for, even if nothing else, Alan, all year long, we've been calling for these things. We've been highlighting certain situations that I've, I have said on this very podcast week in and week out. I don't expect it to change because once you see coaches do certain things in certain situations, it's a rare coach that's going to change that. We weren't prepared in certain situations. It came back to bite us yet again. That for me is the most frustrating thing. The story of the game, Alan, for everyone is going to be threefold. First is third downs, right? That's primarily where this game was won and lost. We're yeah. going to break this down in depth. The frustration level of not being able to get off the field on third down is incredible. I want to reset everyone's brain to the beginning of the game. And Alan, you mentioned this walking in, how good it felt on first down and second down to open the game. We had just driven. We had gotten stopped. That was frustrating. They come out, stuff, stuff. It's yeah, third and 14. Violently stuffed. And you're feeling like, hey, this is going to be good. They're going to be in trouble. We moved the ball on our side. We got stopped. Whatever. Right. We get the ball back. We can score. Things feel good. And then that was the last time as a Gator fan that you felt good was all of a sudden they convert third and 14. They convert third and 11. And all of a sudden, the narrative in your own head, if we stop them running the ball, we can not only will we win, we, we might win rather easily, totally flipped upside down. Right. And they do it once. It's like, okay, that was weird. Busted coverage. We're not great in zone. But this was the theme all day. Was it 8 for 12, I believe? Stats on third down. That is unreal. They were very pedestrian to poor most of this season on third down. And they looked like they were the best team in the country at it. You know, And these weren't third and ones. I would expect if you put Georgia in third and one, they're going to pick it up. With that offensive line and Swift, you just reset yourself for the next set of downs. That We wanted to invite them into that theoretically with the type of defense, the way we're structured, third and long should be where we feast. And that was where they feasted. And it was a little bit of mirror of last year where they killed us on third down. Uh, and that was extremely frustrating. It was extremely frustrating this year. Yeah, they were 12 for 18 on third down. They were 9 for 12 passing on third down, which is unbelievable given right. that half of those were third and six or longer. Two of those were third and 10 or longer. Right. So that's just defying incredible amounts of odds, especially given that's not their strength. 
And it's a carryover from last year where they were eight for 14 on third down. So a lot of frustrating continuation. The officiating in the first half was incredibly bad, Alan. Typically, we don't talk a lot about officiating on this podcast. It's human error. You expect things to go for you and against you sometimes. The first half was almost entirely against us, in my opinion, with one of the more confusing, if not worst calls I've seen involving a Florida team with the incomplete pass ruled as a catch, which is incredible. That's a field goal. There's a touchdown. There were also no pass interference calls on what seems to be clear pass interference situations against our team. It's especially bad for us, Alan, because we're such a passing-oriented team. Right. If they are not calling what are clear holding and pass interference calls, we have no real shot against elite teams because we cannot run the football. We have got to have the officials call blatant cheating on the defense in order to give us these first downs that we deserve. Otherwise, we're punting. And so really hurtful, I thought, start from the officiating in the first half. Yeah, and I'm with you. I feel like bad officiating ends up evening out through the course of the game. It really killed us in the first half, and there was no margin of error in this game. Why? Because there were so few possessions. We had four in the first half. One of those, I believe, is the kneel down. So really three, and only three in the second half. That is, like, unreal. The average in a college football game is around 13. So that's what made the game feel so strange is that there were so few possessions. So if, you do, if you're not maximizing possessions, you're going to lose. Uh, we did well to hold them to field goals. And then, obviously, we started being much more productive late. But it just felt like the game never really got moving because there was such limited action, so few movements. And let that settle in. We scored on half of our offensive possessions. Right. Two touchdowns and a field goal against a top five defense in most categories. We talked about them playing against softer competition, but talent-wise, they're right there, right? They're going to find out where they really are by the end of the year. No doubt a top 15 defense. We scored on half of their possessions without a run game to speak of at all. So that'll soak in more as we go through the offense. But you've got this written down now, and I'll read it out. If I showed you Swift's number, we talked about containing him in the pass game. He had one catch. Containing him in the run game, where he wound up only really having 86 yards on 26 carries, which is a very inefficient day at the office. What would you have felt like the game would have been like? Right. If you showed me those numbers and say we held Swift to just 86 yards on 25 carries, I mean that that's not nothing, but he's not winning the game for you there. And again, we talked about him you know, killing us in the passing game. And also the other key set I said was, can we just not turn the ball over? And we didn't. So if you showed me those two stats, I would have said we won handily. We probably won 35, 14, something like that. Cause that means they didn't go and do anything. But the other key stat that I was looking for number of sacks for the Gators, what was it? Zero. That's the other side of this equation. We got no pressure. So very weird game statistically. When you look for what we were expecting Georgia to do well, us to do poorly, vice versa, that's not really how it played out. Um, so this game was a little backwards in terms of tendencies. Yeah, you've got third downs officiating. You then have, in my opinion, under all this umbrella, maybe the most important one is is Coaching. Coaching. Now, there was a narrative out there, Alan, that we were outcoached. 
We're going to talk a lot about this, of course. I think our primary bread and butter as a podcast is to talk about coaching. Right. Your off-the-cuff reaction after leaving the stadium, before seeing the film, before any breakdown, what was your thought? This is hard to say, like, totally outcoached, because I don't know that Georgia necessarily, I wasn't, like, amazed by their coaching output. But we definitely underperformed. And there's some of this is, you know, people have bad days. Players have bad days. Coaches have bad days. But this is a little bit of reflective of, of where we've been as a coaching staff. And we didn't seem to make the kinds of adjustments I would have hoped for us coming in off a of bye week. So outcoached, I'd say at least a little bit. And we're going to get into, and if you look at it from a certain direction, maybe a lot. Yeah, I think that's the key. Leaving the stadium, you probably felt like, well, man, on defense, we struggled. We, we played a lot of, you know, off, off man coverages, which is frustrating. Our play call seemed interesting. We couldn't get lined up correctly at times coming out of a bye week uh, while Georgia played a rather perfect game, uh, looking at how they did things, including converting that last third down where they're passing. I think it was easy to say Kirby and his staff outcoached us, which might be hard for some people to swallow, given a lot of people think Kirby's a terrible coach and he's, in, you know, whatever the case is going on, right? All recruiters. Kirby said during the week that it's players that win these games. You know, that's what matters more than scheme, kind of like some people thought was a direct shot at Dan. But I think at the end of the day, Alan, as we unpack this, spoiler alert here, coaching had a lot to do with why Georgia beat us. They do have better players than we do in a lot of positions. But when you're looking at the film, it was rarely an individual talent that did anything to the Florida Gators on Saturday, Alan. A lot of this, especially on the defensive end, was one coach out coaching another which takes on a very similar tone to the LSU game for me, just in a different way. But similar stuff crops up. So disappointing for me. I'm very disappointed about the coaching staff yet again. I want to I want to leave this big picture in your head again. We've talked about it before. To me, the definition of good coaching is allowing your players to lose the game by putting them in the right position. And you let someone who's better than them run around them, make a play on them, catch a ball on them. It seems like, especially on defense, Alan, that we don't give a chance to see how good some of our players can be, but we frequently give plenty of chances for our bad players to continue to be bad in situations where we know that they're not good. And that part frustrates me maybe the most, maybe the most. So we're going to unpack that. Game analysis, we lose 24-17. You had Gators winning 27-23, very close to the score. I had Florida winning 27-20. Very close to the score. And then Danny had Florida winning 30-24. So let's look at our offense. Let's unpack this piece by piece. What was our game plan, Alan? We know that Dan said that he wanted to get a lead. But what were we really trying to do in this game to build a lead or play? Because there's a lot of thoughts out there. We never ran the ball. We threw the ball a million times. We couldn't convert on third or fourth down. We couldn't get play signaled. What was the game plan from best what we can tell? Well, I think early on it's very clear that when they script things from the beginning, they love to get Kyle Pitts involved. And, of course, he was torching Georgia early. Once they began to take him away a little bit, now, again, we might have just not been seeing him, um, You know, we started to lose a little bit of momentum. Of course, we're going to run the ball be- some of the beginning. We're going to try it. Makes a little sense. But largely... We almost, when we were successful, we were throwing the ball. Ran a little bit late when they were inviting us to run because they were dropping so many people back, trying to keep us from scoring quickly. But 
a little bit of, you know, still the desire to, we got to run the ball, but we cannot. Even in third and short, even when we want to, we cannot. So in the first half, we ran the ball seven times and we passed the ball 11 times. So we were relatively balanced, what you would have expected. That's a comically low number of plays. Right, the Dan Mullen game plan to be. We had seven carries for 19 yards in the first half, so 2.1 yards per play. We had six completions out of 11, so you take that 11 for 106 yards, divide 11 by 106, you get a 9.6 yard per play average. So again, this is, comes into what we've talked about. So if you're out there thinking, we lost the game because we didn't run the ball enough or because we're not balanced enough, I will say to you the numbers. You're averaging four times more per pass play than run play against Georgia. Keep that in mind as we enter the second half with what actually happens. But clearly the game plan was, in fact, Allen, to try to get a lead and to play our rather normal offense, passing and running, and be normal. Because we had so few possessions, I feel like there's kind of a a thought out there that's magnified that we just sort of, I don't know what we were doing, crazy things. We weren't. We were running our normal Dan Mullen-style offense, Georgia countered with exactly what you would expect Georgia to counter with. They loaded up to stop the pass. Something we said these elite teams are going to do, which tells you everything, Alan, about what they think about Kyle Trask. Everything. They know they've got to try to stop him. They had no respect for our running game. We tried to run, right? Seven carries. That's almost half of our plays in the first half. 19 yards, no good. And most of those run plays were running into a, a, a plus one front for us. We're at least equal in the worst case scenario, numbers in the box wise, and we just can't run it. So that's a problem, like like we said. That encouraged Georgia to continue to stay in, in two deep safety looks where they're playing man across the board with two extra defenders helping and filling. Tough task for the offense, yet we are moving the ball. Right. We did really well. I think you can watch Kyle Trask hit these receivers into very tight windows. Freddie Swain coming down with some tough grabs, Kyle Pitts. Grimes with a great catch and a really difficult situation where he gets interfered with. Van Jefferson making nice plays. There wasn't people running wide open. And Georgia covers very well in those situations. They tackle well. So they limited yards after the catch. They were you know, basically daring us to make the most difficult throws, which we were doing uh, more often than not. Uh, enough to move the ball effectively in the second half. It's just a really tough way to do that when you cannot run the ball. It's third and one, second and one, whatever it is, and you can't even get a little bit of yardage where you just have to abandon that completely is such a difficult way to play offense. Now, we talk about you know doing what the defense gives you. Sometimes just running the ball for a little bit of yardage it's, takes so much pressure off of you, and we just don't have that option available to us. It hurts, and we've talked about that a lot, and that's why one of the reasons why I said this team can't win anything. As excited as I was for Trask, and we said the ceiling can be higher than it is with Franks, which I think is absolutely true. You can't win tough games against elite competition that's more talented than you consistently when you are so deficient on the offensive line. And, and we've said this all along. The offensive line has become, for more, for more or less, Alan, like, slightly below average from maybe what we expected them to be. They're not like a huge deviation off of what we thought they could be. The problem is Trask is so good that it's highlighting how bad our offensive line is now because you could see a path to being an elite team. And Trask afterwards said he feels like Florida is an elite team. And I think I could see why I'd feel the way if I was Kyle Trask too. He's passing the ball for 250 plus yards against a pass defense that's playing cover two man or cover three man the entire game against him. NFL quarterbacks would have a hard time completing that many passes. 
But with that being aside, I thought what we did right was we never quit yet again. We've talked about this team. Right. A lot of big emotional spots. Maybe the, maybe the play of the game was the holding call when Swift scores. You feel like our back is going to be broken. We're down 16-3. to three. All we do is get that stop there, drive down, and score right with our backs on the mat. Trask gets better as the game goes on. We moved more and more to those four and five wide sets. You've heard us talk about all year long and had a ton of success in them. Because like we talked about, if they bring pressure, they're leaving us one-on-one open with space. Right. If they don't bring pressure, Trask is so good at identifying the matchup, we make them pay. In fact, in the first half, we probably have a touchdown to P. Ryan out on third down. If the ball's not batted down, right? why is the ball batted down? Because Stone Forsyth gets thrown four yards back basically into Kyle Trask's body. That guy bats that down not because Trask releases it in a bad place, because he's got a guy that's six inches in front of him. Because our left tackle can't block a one-on-one matchup. You just can't have this stuff in the SEC. But despite all that, again, wide receivers played excellent. couple drops from Pitts. Afterwards, Kirby Smart called Pitts the best tight end he's ever seen, which seemed like a snap reaction in the game. He's seen some good tight ends. But either way, a lot of good stuff going on. Should have had more PI calls. So there was a lot of good in this game. But the problem, I think, Allen, was we knew we were really good at this stuff. And we said coming into this game that we fully expected Kyle Trask to play really well. We said from the beginning, based upon his technical skills, if you're listening all year long, right when he came in against Kentucky, we said, this is repeatable stuff. What he can do or he can keep doing, no defense can really do anything to get him out of the rhythm, which has been completely true all year long, which is an incredible testament to Trask. However, Allen, outside of that stuff, we struggled tremendously. Billy Gonzalez gets undressed again by Dan Mullen for getting the receivers out of the game. you got to think this is the end of the rope for Billy Gonzalez, given this is two huge outbursts during the year. Maybe, maybe not. But what was the deal coming out of the bye week, getting the play calls in? This is not a road game. We've not struggled with this all year long. The crowd noise is not loud. What yeah, happened so, here? Weird stuff. I, I, we'll never really know. I mean, there's the play where P. Ryan runs off. Nobody runs back in. P. Ryan runs back in. So I don't know, was it Pierce or Davis didn't have their helmet or something? And I, Weird stuff going on at the beginning of the game. And again, you know, you win the game. If, it, if you call two timeouts early and you win, it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't really care. You know, there's going to be weird stuff like that with a college team. But it just is reflective of a whole. It didn't seem like we were prepared as well as we wanted to be. We were not. And personnel-wise, another head-scratcher, Allen. Blythe started again. This is a weird tick with them. Like, if, if they've had so much more success with Garage that he's proven he can do it, why go back to that? It's like a weird superstition thing. I don't understand it. I don't either. He didn't play a lot last game. We were very happy about that. He starts again in this game, Alan. He blows a couple of assignments that were crucial, including third down and one. If you're wondering why we got so smashed on third down and one, it's because Blaise entirely whiffed his man. Can't run the ball when your right guard can't block anybody. So he gets taken out. We switch to Guraj on that next drive, which we go with basically two straight big pass plays. An incomplete should be pass interference play if Copeland understands that you need to fight for that ball more. Emery run you know, third down play field goal, but we stick with then garage for the whole game. So that, that's, let's, let's put one coaching, put one coaching item there. Sometimes you're going to get weird getting the play call stuff. And like you said, I don't like that. That's really poor. It shouldn't happen, but you can overcome that. Continuing to put the wrong personnel out there each and every week and just proving to yourself every single time that it's wrong is beyond understanding. That's just, that's a, that's an X in the wrong column. We struggled again and we struggled mightily in this game, Alan, to protect the A gap. We'd highlighted before that Buchanan, our center, 
can struggle at times with closing down that A-gap. Georgia obviously saw something on film they liked. I expect every other team yeah. to fully employ this strategy against us. They do not have Georgia's talent in the front seven per se, but Auburn did not do this. I bet they wish they did. In retrospect, they only really attacked our A-gap. Say a little bit. Say and the A-gap is the one that's right next to your center. So center snapping the ball to the left or to the right of the center is your A-gap, your primary gap. And then you go one player over, that's your B-gap, right? So there's all kinds of blitzes you can employ. The A-gap is the simplest of all to protect. Typically, if you're in high school and you've got a team that's got a really good defensive line, they'll attack your A-gap and they'll kill you all day. In college, you expect teams to be able to address the A-gap. Georgia routinely annihilated us through this gap, and it really, really, really affected us in this game. Uh, that's the worst I've seen on film all year long. I expect teams to attempt to do this. And as a little note here, that third down and one early false start looked like it was on Lang, 81 Lang, our freshman tight end. It was not. It was on a right tackle, DeLance. He actually jumped first, which caused Lang to go. So little notes here that the offensive line, of course, continues to struggle mightily. And Kyle Trask continues somehow to complete passes despite that right. being the Watching case. Watching him navigate the pocket, again, just a masterful performance in a lot of ways. Now, took two huge debilitating sacks. But this is the problem when sometimes when you're in five wide and you're looking downfield, there's nowhere for him to go. He's getting pressure from the outside and the inside. Now, he probably could have lost less yardage by just eating it a couple steps forward. But it's really tough. You're it's that's a you're walking a tightrope when you're playing five wide against a team like Georgia. If you who can't hold up for just a second, uh, you're gonna get buried. Well, here's here's a fun fact, Alan. Neither of those sacks came on five wide. In fact, the first one is Stone Forsyth doing this once a game, entirely whiffing a man-to-man assignment. And not only does he whiff, Alan, he whiffs on the inside. So you're the quarterback, you take snap, you take one foot backwards. And you don't have a defensive end that is in your face immediately because your left tackle doesn't even touch the guy that just takes an inside step on him. So that play's dead. We lose 10 yards. The second one is even more interesting because in the game, you don't know what's happening. You see Trask lose 19 yards and think we've lost our minds, right? Let me break this down. Trask is at fault for the second part of this play. But let's talk about what happened. We're in max protect. We're keeping our tight end in and we're keeping our running back in to block. We are only sending three routes out, two which are deep, one which is a hitch. What does this mean? We are trying to hit a big play. Now, here's a theme on film with this entire game. Georgia was basically reading our newspaper. They knew what we were doing, when we were doing it, and how we were doing it almost the entire game. Every kind of Dan Mullany, I'm going to steal something here or do something there, they knew it was coming. They were perfectly prepared for it. They ate us up on this play. Trask takes the drop back. Immediately, we have an A-gap pressure, followed by a B-gap pressure, followed by Trask recognizing he has no throw to make because he has no check down. No one's coming out of the backfield. He should just fall down, and we lose nine yards, and now it's second down and 19. He doesn't. He tries to turn the other way, but because it's not a single offensive lineman that's held a block, we lose 10 more yards. So at first look, if you're thinking, wow, Trask ate both of those sacks, neither of those sacks were on Trask at all. They're both going to be sacks. The second one could have been 10 yards less, but there's nothing you can do. And again, you can't expect to be able to do these things against good teams and win. They do cost you entire possessions. On the flip side, which we're going to talk about, Alan, Jake Fromm had time back there to make breakfast. Yeah, seriously. He could have ordered room service. He could have sat in a lounge chair while we're over here on almost every play getting movable pocket. And for those of you that were on Twitter and were posting about Kyle Trask's pocket presence, I still have a bone to pick. And hopefully it's none of you in this podcast. We said emphatically 
This guy's pocket presence is fantastic. It's always been fantastic. You're continuing to see that in games like these. He's fantastic in the pocket. Fantastic. You saw that on display here. Is it too much love for Kyle Trask? No, it's not because this guy's a one-man offense right now. I don't want to think about what this game would have looked like, Alan, without him. But more importantly, on this pod, we try to break down what's actually going on. And the reality is we can't pass block consistently against elite teams enough to not have some of these negative plays. So we're going to talk about what that means for the defense. The defense needs to needs to help us, need to figure things out. But let me let me ask you this, Alan. We've talked about this a lot. What you can't see in the game sometimes is what kind of route combinations we're running. Now, we're frequently lining up in the trip set where we're equally spaced out, which I frequently really dislike because Georgia played man the majority of this game. Whether it was cover one, cover three, cover two, they were always playing some concept of man, and they would occasionally switch, like we talked about with pattern matching. The best thing you can do is to tighten your spaces up to use rub routes with each other. Run run off each other. Run a man off. Get a guy open. Dan Mullen, it's like he refuses Allen to do it. I watched this entire game. We might have run one or two rub route plays. The one we did run was a touchdown to Freddie Swain at the end on fourth down. That was a fantastic play where it's a little pick play and we score. I just don't understand how every week we can say, look, Dan, teams are loading up and playing man defense against us every single week. And yet we continue to run routes, Allen, that not only go right into their pattern matching, but we're counting on Freddie Swain and Van Jefferson and Kyle Pitts to win just straight one-on-one route running drills the entire game. And we're forcing Trask to hit perfect passes, which he's doing. But we could get bigger plays, Alan, if we use these receivers' routes to help each other. I just don't understand it. That's another mark for me that's going to go in the X in the coaching box, as we've been calling for it. There are ways to get bigger plays against man defenses, especially when you know teams are just going to play man against you. And we seem so reticent to do it. It's like we just don't want to do it. There was a tricky play late where... Um, they got crawl open down the sideline and a rare bad throw from Trask where he throws a little high. That was a great example of uh, sneaking that guy out into the pattern, using some of the other routes to disguise what he's doing. A little more of that would be helpful. And again, I don't love just a gimmicky offense where you have to trick people into getting you open. It's great to have some receivers who can win those one-on-one routes. And when you need a, completion that they're going to be able to beat their man no matter what the defense throws at them but again it's a it's a tightrope walk it's really hard and if you don't have great receivers and a great quarterback you won't be able to do it well and something simple to give you a visual image of this is imagine you have two receivers on the right side and you're playing quarterback and you know a team is in man one of the best combos in football is to have your inside receiver or your slot or let's say freddie swain run any kind of vertical release route right And if that corner is playing off man, like we like to do, let's say, then you're going to have your wide receiver run a vertical release route too. And what's going to happen is you'll have your inside guy take a break towards the outside towards that defender, which is not a pick, it's a route. He's naturally going to create space underneath for your receiver to come under, right? This is exactly the play, Alan, they hit on Trey Dean on third and 11. They ran their receiver on a vertical go route. He clears out Marco Wilson which gives him space to run the out underneath him. But regardless, there's very simple concepts you can employ that are that are straight, solid. You're still ultimately one-on-one, but you're building in space. But again, we'll take three guys. We'll put them in trips. The outside guy runs a curl. The inside guy runs a post. And the Mosin guy runs a dig. No one's helping anybody there. 
there's no assistance. There's no route combinations, no switching. You're not putting any pressure on the defense. I continue to be frustrated by this. I continue to feel like there's improvement for this. All right, let's talk about play calling. This has gotten a lot of attention. So I'm going to say right out of the gate, I thought our play calling was more or less fine. Do I have some issues? Yes. Was it nearly as bad as people were talking about? No. I think you just heard me go off on the structure of some of our plays. I think calling passes versus calling runs was probably correct, especially in the second half. I did not like certain situations, which we're going to talk about now. So one, let's jump on our short yardage play calls. Early on, you can't run the ball against Georgia. It's third and one. You know, we run it. But the other time we pass it. And I think... From what I can tell on film, the Kyle Pitts gets mauled, tackled, hit early, no call. Right. So you can't fault Dan for that one. I'd like better route combos. I'd like better structure. That's a really tough play on fourth down where you only need a yard. And it's a difficult throw. Right. I mean, you can see that they do have those in their playbook, like the the throw to Pitts in the end zone. where You just need a short little thing. You know, it doesn't have to be an amazing uh, athletic feat to come to complete fourth down. Now, if you're expecting Kyle Pitts just to be open, that's an easy pitch and catch. But into that defense, he was going to be covered right there. Yeah, and I'm with you. And that's where more pre-snap motions with your receivers, changing your spacing, resetting to give yourself better angles. Kyle Trask is so smart, you could make this stuff easier. So do I mind passing there? No, not when Georgia's run front is what it is. Do I like the the play that was designed? No, I don't like the play that was designed. So play calling versus play design – Those are two separate things. So most of the calls situationally were okay. There were some confusing calls, Alan. Emery coming in out of nowhere on second down and 10 in the red zone, like LSU deja vu again to run the ball for one yard, which Georgia was wildly prepared for. They immediately switched their defense when he came in. What do you make of that? So I'm going to give this an incomplete because the game was so short. Um, we did nothing tricky really in this game because we didn't really have the opportunity to. It never really presented itself. I wonder if this was the game we were going to see Emory throw the ball out of an obvious run front, or we had something kind of, you know, like a crawl kind of, you know, throw and catch to the quarterback, something a little awkward, but you show it to him first, you smack him later. Dan wants to see what do they do when we run Emory out here? We're going to take advantage of that. Um, they only did it once. I don't I don't want to kill Stroud. We talked ad nauseum about removing Trask repeatedly on those rhythm kind of plays. He does better when he stays in the game. If they had something tricky later on, I don't mind it at all. Now, it didn't help us in the situation, but it didn't kill us either, I thought. So I don't want to murder Mullen for this. We don't like it. It's not optimal, I don't think. But it could have been really great had we had the opportunity to do something to counteract it later on. Yeah, there's certainly a future potential usage of that. I don't like it because against momentum. Traska has just completed two big plays down the field. He throws what's the right read uh, to Copeland on a one-on-one chance where the defender is not looking and is clearly going to interfere with him. Copeland inexplicably makes no real attempt yeah, to strange. fight through the ball. I mean, any any attempt by Copeland there at all to fight through that guy is going to be passing. You put Copeland in that spot because he's a physical guy down the field and he's going to win that one-on-one because they cleared it out for him. It was perfect. And it's super confusing on his part there. Then you go second down to Embry. Then you go third down to, which is not Trask's fault. He makes the right read. P Ryan is open. We're going to get a first down, maybe even more. Ball gets batted down, kick a field goal. Uh, so I don't, I don't love that there again, but I, see, I like what you mentioned. 
if it was going to be used in this game, I don't think it was going to be like LSU. I think they may have had four or five plays for him. I just don't love it because at that time, Trask had just hit two big-time throws, had another good read. He's kind of feeling it. Give him two more shots there via the pass. I definitely don't like just the quarterback run. You're just throwing away a crucial play, in my opinion, in such an important moment in this game where every single play meant so much. Didn't love that. All right, the Trask runs, Alan. A lot of confusion in the game of what the heck we were doing with some of these Trask runs. On film, almost every time we were plus one in the box, which is fine. But Georgia was very intelligent about this. We tried a couple of times with window dressing to send a running back out of the backfield to do something weird. They never had their linebacker follow. Because they were able to sit in cover two the entire game, they had their safety just come down. So they were content to say, we're not going to let you steal five or six yards on third down. This is what happens, Alan, when you have a lot of familiarity between coaches. Kirby Smart has gone against Dan Mullen for a decade now. He knows his stuff. He can read his mind. And he did it in this game a lot. I was very impressed, though, with how well Georgia's players executed every one of these shifts and changes. They frequently would push one of their linebackers into the exact right gap for the play we wanted to run. But those plays are not being called by Trasks. Those are plays being called by the sideline. Trasks is then shifting protection, moving a running back out. We did gain a couple of yards on them here or there. Uh, if you're wondering why we're doing them, it's because we did have numbers to do them. But again, this offensive line, even plus one, even when it's five versus four, Allen, just cannot hold a block, which I'm sure is extremely frustrating for Dan because his offense relies upon that. All football offense relies upon that. Not a great situation. I don't hate the few times we did it because the numbers did make sense. But man, Georgia was really right. well prepared for there's, this. There's one where he's not the one up the middle, but a little bit later on, where if we hold the edge just a little bit longer, he's going to get the yardage. Um, guy comes clean. off. He's being blocked. Trask has the edge. And, you know, Trask moving forward right there, if he gets by that guy, he's going to pick up at least very close to the first down yardage. Those plays, it's funny. I'm actually surprised we don't go to more because they're such, like, comfort food for Dan in this offense is that QB power. You saw him go to it a lot with Felipe, and it was very successful um, for time at times for us last year with this offensive line, it's just not going to be there. And so I'll give him credit for not probably indulging him smell as much as he's probably tempted to. And I think that's the key. When I, when I look for these Dan Mullen plays, I look to see if he's doing it in situations where he shouldn't be doing it. And we're going to talk a little about some articles written about Frank's first Trask, but as a spoiler alert, Alan, if you thought that Frank's was running the ball well this year, Look in the very limited games he played. He was not. He was not running the ball well this year. This was not last year's offensive line. No. So don't kid yourself thinking Franks was going to run the ball against Georgia because he was not. Franks was a nice little downhill runner at certain times against certain teams. Not against this kind of team. Especially not a team that's so prepared for the gaps we like to hit on. The encouraging thing that I'm going to say after we're saying a lot of negative stuff here is the blocking schemes, and you've said this before, Alan, the blocking schemes that Dan Mullen has on run plays are awesome. They're so good X's and O's wise. They're just so bad when you don't have the talent to do it. But they're so, so good. On film, you can see, wow, that would be a great run play. I can see how that's 15 yards. We just can't block. That's very, very frustrating, again, especially with a quarterback like we have now. Okay, let's talk about a big, a big point of discussion. We were going to put it in coaching corner. We're just going to put it right here under play calling. It took us six plus minutes to score in the fourth quarter. Your feelings on that drive. Gosh, I I don't mind 
like any one play in particular, this is hard because you had to get it right. You had to score. And we weren't huddling, weren't being super slow about it. This is also where I think Georgia bait us into running the ball a couple times. And we got some yardage, but it was slow. It just felt like, oh, man, if we get there, we gave ourselves no room for error afterward. Now, we scored with enough time. If we get the ball back, we have enough time to score. We don't have a like a big buffer, but we're we're good there. It's really tough. Uh, into that defense, I I don't know that I would have wanted us to gamble much more than we did. It was too long, yes, but it would have been hard not to do it like that. Yeah, I feel like we could have been more in a traditional two minute offense, less subs, all passing, kind of go in that shell. Here's the problem. On film, Georgia, again, played a consistent cover two, cover three, cover one man defense. The windows were very small. Every single play was very difficult. We were not just getting guys wide open, stroking the ball over the field. They were not playing a soft zone. I give them a lot of credit for this. A lot of teams would have went into soft zone mode there, Allen, and let us walk down the field, trading time for a score. They did not. They made us earn every single yard. They did not come into help on the runs. They dared us to run the ball to keep the clock running. They allowed us to gain four or five or six yards at a time with that regard. The college football rule that was changed several years ago where going out of bounds on your own does not stop the clock until two minutes was crucial because we got out of bounds about five times. It doesn't matter. So I'm in two camps here. One, it was very hard for us to move the ball against Georgia. This was not something where we could just come out and light the world on fire. We had to score there to put game pressure on them which we wound up doing. We wound up doing with plenty of time. Had we stopped them on that third down, Alan, we have two minutes and change left in college football, which is an eternity with the clock stops. So it all wound up being pretty good. In the perfect world, you score there in three minutes. But look, this is Georgia's defense. They've been tough all day long. I don't know how much faster we could have scored. We could have absolutely, though, gone into a true two-minute offense and attempt to run a very quick-tempoed offense. I think Dan felt like we needed to be very methodical attempting to get down the field against them, planning our plays, finding out what's going on. I can't argue with the situation we got into. Even if you score Allen with two more minutes on the clock, it's one more first down they have to convert. That's the scenario you're in. So let's say you score in two minutes and 20 seconds. If they get two first downs, the game is over. Literally, that's it. So you have to kind of be careful with how important you think that is. Because like Dan said at the end of the game, is what you know is you're down to the scores, you've got to score once. You've got to score once with enough time right. to actually kick the ball off. We did all those things. I'm not nearly as upset about that as other people are. Could have gone a little faster. There could have been more tempo. But ultimately, the way it worked out was good. We had what you would have wanted in that situation. I don't think that was some egregious error or mistake. We did have to score. We did score. There was enough time. Let's talk about Trask. 21-33. Almost the same exact line as he had last week. 257 for two touchdowns. My notes on him, Allen, are this. I thought he had an incredible game against a top-tier defense. He did this almost nearly all by himself without any run game to support him, being pressured all day long, consistently throwing into tight windows with a lot of game pressure on him. Here's a nugget for you. His overall QBR, which I don't put a lot of stock in QBR. It's just a good way to kind of evaluate how is a quarterback tracking relative to some index improved after this week. It was really good last week on the season. It's now even better. So now this is a guy who's played against two top five-ish teams. He's played against a lot of real SEC defenses, Allen, and his QBR is continuing to get better. 
That's impressive. That's very impressive. So I want to start with that. What were your thoughts about Trask in this game? I loved him. Uh, it's so hard with so few possessions. You mess up anything and the game is over the way our, we're going to get to it. The defense played. So in kind of summation with this, I thought the offense played well enough for us to win. If we have a normal amount of possessions, I think we win this game. If we can get off the field, I think we win this game. So are we criticizing the offense in some certain ways? Yes. Is it same problems as offensive line, play call here and there. Overall, we played well enough to win. Trask definitely played well enough to win. The receivers played well enough to win for the most part. We're going to get to where we, if you're going to diagnose, like, all right, the body, the cadaver is on the table. What went wrong? We're, you know, little CSI detectives here. You're going to look at the defense and not at the offense, even though we only scored 17 points and we only gave up 24 points. And you look at how hard it was to score. That Van Jefferson touchdown was almost all Kyle Trask. He escapes out of the pocket. Right. He rolls to his right. He takes this one-on-one matchup who is absolutely not open, but he sees the defender is not totally looking and makes an NFL-level one-on-one throw to receiver. We get a touchdown out of that one. Florida's offense is now averaging at least 400 total yards, Allen, for the first time since 2009 through this many games in a season. So it's been a decade since we've reached this level of offensive efficiency. Yet, I give you this. Will Miles writes an article. I'm not going to dog Will Miles. I'm going to take I'm going to take a issue with this point. He writes that we would have been better off having Franks in at quarterback. And Will Miles has created his own calculation that evaluates quarterbacks, which I think is very nonsensical because it factors in sacks and a bunch of other things. And I think it ultimately does not evaluate quarterbacks do well. Do you feel the same that if we had Franks in this game, we would have had a better chance of winning? This is not an uncommon thing. Will's not alone in thinking That's these comical. thoughts. That's comical. They would have, Georgia would have obliterated a Frank's led offense with this, with their defense where they're at, what their relative strengths and weaknesses are. We would have scored like nine points in this game because we would have kicked three long field goals. Yeah, that's that's well said. I mean, to me, I saw that one of our listeners sent it to me, and I said, I just can't believe. And again, no offense to Will Miles, I see people write these things, but Frank's is a is an average quarterback at best. Uh, when you talk about total college quarterbacking and Dan's obviously runs a little bit, does some things with the deep ball. Trask is a savant back there holding this team together by himself. And you get people that are saying, what if we had benched Trask for Emery or, or maybe the Gator Nitchville podcast loves Trask too much. It's, it's incredible. And I'll give you this. You know what Frank's numbers were last year against Georgia? He was 13 of 21 for 105 yards, one touchdown, one pick. Those are his numbers. 105 yards. I shouldn't have to remind all of you out there that most of his numbers against good teams were 100 and something yards. He got so propped up by playing a bunch of horrible defenses at the end of last year. I mean, do people forget, Alan, that we would have lost to Kentucky? We were going to lose to Kentucky. Trask, I, I just don't understand what people are watching. I don't know what else you want from this. I don't get it. I don't know what you need, but I can definitively tell you that if Franks was playing, this team is worse. And then if you don't recognize the incredible nature with what Trask is doing in this offense. You're just not seeing it. And there is no way to run with this team. Don't fool yourself thinking Emery running read option or, or you know, Frank's running, whatever he's going to run, is going to run against a team like Georgia because it's not going to happen. Not with this offensive line. It doesn't matter. It right. just doesn't matter. If you couldn't run against the lesser teams on the schedule, Georgia would have had none of it. Okay, so you've got a ways to improve segment that we always talk about. I'm looking at the notes that you have. It's the same. For the last two weeks. 
improve how, you know, route combos, maybe more pierce, run pass balance. The last item you have on here is recruiting. Yeah, forget run pass balance. Exactly. Lean into it. Which, right. in the second half, let's give a little applause there before yeah. we go into recruiting. We did that. Now, Dan, at the end of the game, got asked the question point blank, hey, why did you start passing the ball all the time? Was that like a matchup thing? And it was like, no, we were behind. But I hope that he continues to recognize. And I think he's done a good job. I think we, our job, as you said, Alan, is to, is to nitpick what went wrong, which is what coaches do too. Don't mistake this for us dogging Dan Mullen. I think the offense did a good enough job. I think although it could have been better, I think he could do things more. He's way outside his comfort zone right now. Yeah, that's and, a great point. And he did still generate a good amount of offensive yards and points with the ball hardly at all in his hands. He made some mistakes, sure, as a human. But he's way outside of his comfort zone. I mean, just way outside of it. And he's doing rather well. On the other side of the ball, it's a different story. But let's talk about what you just hit on, recruiting. To me, this is the biggest difference overall. The coaching, I think, cost us a shot in this game. But we're in a weird, miraculous scenario because we kind of landed in this guy in Kyle Trask who no one knew about. And he's kind of perfect for the system. We've got these great receivers. That's a little fortuitous. But on the face of it, Alan... George's team versus our team, talent-wise, they're in different hemispheres. Right. You can look at, especially on the offensive line. Now, Georgia has a great offensive line. We have a very subpar. They have athletes all over the field on defense. Now, again, our defense, because we've cobbled together a few elite players, theoretically, we could compete at that level. But really, you see it on the offensive line that we're light years behind them. doesn't mean we can't get there. Some of the guys we recruited the last two years start to pop. Maybe we'll see this a year from now, but we're not there yet. And you can see that at some very key positions. Now, like you said, at wide receiver, we're better. Quarterback, even better. There's certain spots on the field. It doesn't mean we're deficient to them, comparably to them at every position, but it definitely shows up uh, when you go head-to-head like that. Yeah, if you just look across the board, our defensive line is almost all three-star, 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 three-star. And a lot of these guys are nice players. But you've got Georgia's offensive line. Almost every single one of those guys is the top 90 player. And at some point in time, you know where it matters a lot is one-on-one matchups. That's where it matters a lot. It's Stone Forsyth getting his lunch handed to him on a one-on-one non-stunted play. And if you get three or four of those plays aim, Allen, that changes games. It changes games. We saw with Auburn. We have no possible way to stop their defensive line. Those are three turnovers. And so these are things where at Florida, we should be enjoying the fruits of a talented team. We don't have it. The bigger concern, we're not getting any better at it. There's a lot of Dan Mullen apologists about recruiting. Well, guess what? We're slotted right where we were last year right now. Same kind of situation. Not a lot of top 100 players. Just not those top guys. What does it take for the staff to get better? Now, we already talked about this during the bye week. We talked about coaches that need to fire replaced with recruiters we have to get better here have we made up ground on the scoreboard yes we certainly have we only lost by seven this year versus losing 36 17 last year could we have won this game yes we could have but you can't expect to win a championship in the sec allen when your margin for error is so small we basically had to play a perfect game we didn't turn it over we maximized our situations on offense we played really poorly on defense but there's a lot of different ways georgia still could have won this game Right. For they, us, they don't we had kick to be a lot perfect. of field goals. Right. They blow us out, out, right? So yeah. if you're thinking we were really close in this game, we were close, but honestly, there's so many more ways they win this game, and that's going to come down to talent. Coaching only does so much. You can be the best X's and O's coach in the world, but if you're talent deficient enough, you're only going to win one out of 10. 
And that's not good enough. So I think that Coach Mullen and his staff knows recruiting is a deficiency. They've been unable to get it done right now. But don't sleep on that. If Georgia's team was as talented as we were, we win this game easily, in my opinion, Alan. Easily, even with the coaching mistakes we had. It just puts a huge spotlight on the coaching decisions when you're the under-resourced team because you have to play so well. Okay, James, let's turn our attention to how Florida did on defense versus Georgia's offense. And this is a really funny thing. You look at last year's game, this year's game. Let me read you some stats. Uh, in 2018, Georgia was 8 for 14 on third down. From was 17 of 24, 240 yards, three TDs. In 2019, 20 of 30, 279 yards, two TDs, 12 of 18 on third down. Nine for 13 when passing on third down. So, obviously, not great stats in those particular circumstances. Let's talk about our game plan. What do we do most of the time, and what did you think about that? Most of the time, we ran soft coverage. So, you can play man Allen and still be in soft coverage, and what that means is you're off the ball, right? You're seeing our defenders seven to eight yards off the ball. Our plan was to do what Grantham likes to do, which we had even said before the game. I had posted on Twitter under our account, here's what Fromm's done against cover one press man. The numbers were horrible. It was clearly what he was worst at. Please grant them do the right thing, right? And so we'll talk about how much cover one press man we ran. Spoiler alert, none. None, Alan. We ran none. Which brings now the second game in a row where we had LSU in this one where Grantham basically just does what he wants to do. And we had raised that flag of warning, if you recall, early on in the season where some people would have probably said it was way too early. I had said, look, when coaches do this, it's rare that they're going to wind up doing something right because they're just, they're an old school coach that does what they do. And you even heard after the game, Georgia's receivers say, Alan, we know that Florida likes to run a lot of nickel, which is 42, which of course we know that from covering this podcast, right? We knew we were going to get a lot of those looks. We knew we could beat those looks. So not only does the opposing team know exactly what you're doing, you go right ahead and just do it. And so the reason we open with these numbers is our game plan was predictable. We talk about game theory a lot. What's the number one thing in game theory? Alan, assess your opponent, know where they are, and be one level ahead of them. Georgia, as a coaching staff, was one level ahead of both of us on offense and defense. On defense, it was way worse than on offense. They undressed us consistently. In fact, on almost all of these third downs we're going to look at, Alan, they accurately predicted the exact coverage we would be in and ran the perfect pass play beater against it and against the right person, which is an incredible level of efficiency. Now, maybe in a one-game scenario, you say, hey, they got us. But couple this with last year, not so good. Couple this with a last-time team named Georgia had this kind of efficiency against someone else. It was when Grantham was at Louisville. There's a lot of things to be really unhappy about with this. As look at Celso, we ran cover one seven times. Of all those cover one looks, which are all on third down, we were off man. We were off ball. So soft every single time. We ran cover zero twice, and we ran cover two man, where we're running two safeties with man three times. So we actually had 11 plays of our 64 snaps or so that were in some sort of what you would consider to be a man defense. You probably did not notice this in the game because we were so far off to playing very soft. Okay, so I want to take a second here, Alan, to talk about why I prefer with our roster press man coverage. You have two corners and C.J. Henderson and Marco Wilson are supposedly NFL corners. One thing we know from film is they both excel at playing press man. Where they're going to be one yard off the line of scrimmage, putting their, their hands on the receiver. 
Why is this beneficial? It's beneficial because you mess up the route timing. You mess up where the route is going. You can alter entirely the release of the route. If you have good press man corners, that changes the entire game. We talked about how coveted these spots are in the NFL. We seemingly have two guys who are very good at this, and we are continuing to employ them by putting them seven to eight yards off the ball off the start. And a lot of times they're actually playing more of a cover three look where they're playing a technique that forces the receiver into the middle of the field. So they're not doing any of the things that NFL teams would eventually use them as here in college. Right. That's a head scratcher. And so here's the thing. There's certain things you don't want to do if you cannot do them as a defense, right? Playing like press man, if you have terrible corners against elite receivers, it's just saying, please score a touchdown on us anytime you want. Think about the fastest guy in the NFL, uh, somebody on the Chiefs, Nicole Hardman, somebody like that, former Georgia player. If you just lined up in front of him with a mediocre corner, he's just going to run right by them. So you can't do that unless you're just being exceptionally tricky for one or two plays. This is what the frustration is that, that we've talked about, that people talk about, is seemingly, right, we have the roster to do this. Now, you could put those guys in a situation and maybe they get toasted, but they're failing at what you're asking them to do right now. Theoretically, they could do the other thing better. This is a little bit playing left-handed. So we've praised Mullen for going away from his tendencies, being you know, at least relatively successful throwing the ball every time, which is not what he would like to do, which is not his preference. Grantham seems to be unwilling for the most part to do what this defense, what this season would ask him to do. And so South Carolina, Allen ran cover one 17 times against Georgia. And they intercepted him three times. Three times. All of those times their corners are playing press man every single time. Sometimes their nickel was. We've never this entire season seen our nickel play a single snap of press man coverage ever at any point in time. But South Carolina, which is an inferior defense talent-wise to ours, was able to use this rather successfully. Now, it should be noted that what clearly is Georgia's favorite receiver was not playing against South Carolina, which which, um, uh, Kirby Smart afterwards had made mention of what a difference he made. But regardless... Georgia's receivers are not running away from everyone. They're not running away from anyone on film. In fact, most of their completions, which we're going to walk through, Allen, are just good routes run against our coverage scheme. And in fact, one I can point to where it was true man on the edges was the second conversion of the game when they hit that kind of sloppy, like on the sideline throw that was on C.J. Henderson. C.J. had his man so locked in man coverage, he turns around and looks with the guy right behind him locked down but because Fromm was able to escape the pocket out to the right, by the time CJ looks around, that receiver just stops, comes back to Fromm, works back to the ball. That's going to happen occasionally in man. But the actual first route he ran was so gloved up by CJ Henderson, you never dream of throwing it there. That's okay. South Carolina stuck with this kind of coverage and was rewarded. We continually did things they wanted to do. So Georgia accurately predicted what we would do. That's probably the most frustrating part on that very first play. We're running a cover two zone. We have trading in the game, Allen. The coverage is actually perfect. We force an underneath throw. That should be a layup tackle on a drag route. A layup tackle, seven or eight yards short of the first down. Get off the field. Trading takes a horrific angle. Doesn't even touch the guy. Winds up running for a first down. So sometimes it's scheme, right? Sometimes it's playing zone is fine. And sometimes it's personnel. I think the main problem I have, Allen, is we get both of them wrong consistently. 
or running a cover two zone with Trey Dean, who all season long has gotten totally picked on. Then, on third and 11 later on, we're running cover one man, where Trey Dean is getting toasted by their slot receiver, and they know it. They're running a let's beat, let's beat Trey Dean play. They won their receiver on the outside off. They just run him on a go route. He's never getting the ball. They run him away, so they can put an out route underneath it. From take a snap, looks straight at Trey Dean, throws a deep out. It's just too easy at this level. We've known it all season long. Grantham should know it. Very frustrating. So game plan wise, they owned us. We got owned by them. We did nothing really to change this story as the game went on. They did make a few plays against our man coverage, which we'll talk about in a second. So there were some times we did it. But again, I think the wrong plan for what happened. Now, we did do some things right. We were fantastic against the run. And we were generally pretty good on early downs. Of course, we gave a big touchdown on first down. But those are the two things I think we did really well. In fact, like you mentioned at the top of the show, Alan, our run defense was much better than I think anybody would have expected. Holding Swift at 3.2 yards per carry is a remarkable achievement. And they fed him. It wasn't like he got 10 carries. He got 25 carries. 3.2 yards per carry is one of the worst games Swift's had as a Georgia Bulldog. Fantastic job in that regard. Right. So this is the place where you would... Be worried. And, you know, you see him get loose a couple times. He's This is an elite running back with a really good to maybe great offensive line, depending on how you want to value them. So to put that performance on paper where you are shutting down their preferences, they live on running the ball and play-action passing. To eat that, like, up so much and to stop him, not just for, like, three, four yards, which, you know, they're mo- moving the chains at that rate, so many times for negative yardage, no gain, one yard, two yards, was really encouraging. To have that kind of performance and then give up those long plays, gosh, just leaves you so frustrated. So frustrated. Because that's, like I said at the top, that's where you would want to invite them into. Theoretically, we're going to blitz or we're going to have our pass rush get home. And maybe Grantham all game just thought eventually we're going to get to from, And we never did. We never did. And here's a couple of things I think coaching-wise we got really wrong yet again. So one, the personnel. Alan, we've talked about this ad nauseum. We've talked about the safeties. But you know what? Grantham threw a curveball at everyone. Who did he start? He started Sean Davis, correct decision, with Jawan Taylor, who's rated even lower than Steiner. And on film is the only person I dog even more than Steiner because at times he gives no effort. Somehow not only did he start with Sean Davis, Alan, he played like 80% of the snaps. What is the deal? Do you have any words to console me? I don't. What is happening? I don't get it. This is like if you've got a if you've got a child who's playing like youth soccer on the weekends and they force you to put a guy in for a quarter or two. This is what's happening at Florida with the SEC championship on the line. I don't understand it, Alan. It's a, a glaring error that you cannot forgive. Secondarily, how is Trey Dean still playing nickel at the University of Florida? This is really tough, um, and it it's hard when you look at a defense and you see one guy who's continually getting picked on in the passing game. Now, it might be the best option. If you're an average corner and the guy next to you is elite, you're going to get thrown at over and over and over again. You're not going to have good statistics because no one is throwing at the other guy. So Trey Dean is obviously the weak link, but you can't – so even if he was average, he probably still wouldn't – have great statistics, but the amount of times that 
he's been beat. And teams just go into the game knowing if he's on the field, we're going to attack him. He's not capable of doing the things that the coaching staff is asking him to do. And that's the major problem there. It's absolutely brutal. And again, as a word of note, we always say this. We're not talking about any of these guys personally. This, I'm not saying, wow, Trey Dean, you're a terrible person. In fact, at this point in time, Alan, I've reached the Dan Warner phase. If you were a Gator basketball fan, Dan Warner would come in the game a lot. I wasn't mad at Dan Warner. I was super mad at Billy Donovan because Dan Warner was not good enough to get the job done. It's not Trey Dean's fault. He's trying as hard as he can try. He's not good in that position. And Grantham keeps rolling him out there. We have other talented guys, Alan, we could try. We've chronicled this ad nauseum, whether it's Chester Kimbo, whether it's Elam, whether you move Marco, there's a million things you could do. And then you've also got Ventrell Miller, who again, he's trying his hardest. He's doing all that he can do, Alan. Right now, he's not a very good linebacker. We have the perfect play call on on a run where he just comes flying in as the gap filler, takes a, a diving unnecessary stop at Swift, misses, and gives up 30 yards. He's struggling in that regard. You've got a guy like Bernie who's playing fantastic. I don't know why Ventrell gets so many minutes. I cannot figure out what is happening. Do you need to rest your players, Alan? Yes, you do. Do you need to rotate them as much as we're rotating them in a game where they're only on the field for 64 snaps? No, you do not. So personnel-wise, I've got major problems. Scheme-wise, I've got major problems. We gave them what they wanted. All kinds of different soft stones, occasional man, but soft. These are all things that Fromm likes to do. They ran those coverage beaters on us. But probably most importantly, Alan, we had on almost every important play a defender doing nothing because we're trying to run these zone blitzes that are kind of late or delayed. And we've got a defender that is just basically doing nothing. He's in no man's land blitzing. He's in no man's land in the flat. On the play where Sean Davis gives up that crucial touchdown, that play action where he blows it, you actually have two guys converging at the bottom of the screen if you're looking at film, right? So closest towards us. You've got, you've got Marco Wilson and C.J. Henderson playing their corner spot, except there's nobody on the left side of the field. And the ball is snapped, and because we're in a zone and not man, and because we're bringing this weird zone blitz, we have a guy covering 40 yards of empty field. Just totally empty field. But this happens on more occasions than I care to admit. In fact, most of the plays Trey Dean is in, if we blitzed him, Allen, he didn't even get to the line of scrimmage, and the ball was already out, exposing us somewhere, which tells you they had a darn good idea what we're doing. So zone blitzing can work really well, if they don't see it coming, doesn't work very well if they do. So scheme-wise, of course, I hated it. What I hate the most, though, Alan, is let's say you come into the game and you've got the zone plan. You think maybe it's going to work. At what point in time do you say, let's do something different? It's two games in a row now where we went an entire game, Alan, without a material change. There's really, I, I know, we keep covering this over and over again, and this is the most frustrating part, is the the way that we're choosing to attack these offenses is inviting them to beat us. Uh, I do think that there's something to be said for zero pass rush. Now it's funny that Grantham is known for blitzing. He did call some blitzes at inopportune times, but Fromm got to sit back there all day, all day. We pressured him very few times. And when we did, he was able to escape large the large amount of the time no sacks never looked uncomfortable in key situations that we're not going to be able to win playing that way regardless especially playing the coverages we were playing on the back end so one our defensive line just not capable of getting it done against their offensive line without some help 
and we didn't send it in the right situations. No, we didn't. And also our pressure schemes were interesting. We played so much coverage, Alan, that we're only sending four guys into their offensive line of five. Their offensive line is talented. We've talked all year long. What's our weakness in the D line? Our defensive tackles. That's what was going on. So you know what they were doing, Alan? They were either doubling Grenard or Zaniga on every single play because they knew we could not get a defensive tackle into the backfield, which is exactly what happened. In fact, in the second play of the game, when they single teamed Zuniga and he went in there and busted up that run play, that was the last time Zuniga saw single coverage the entire game. And you can do that when you have D tackles that cannot get in there, Alan. So again, that's a personnel and a talent issue. But regardless, it doesn't mean that you can't run a different coverage scheme behind. That's not an excuse for the various things we're running. So scheme-wise, disliked it. I really, really, though, dislike the lack of changing the scheme as things go on. And also, Alan, as an aside, we talked this before, where is a dime defense? It's third and 14. Why are we always in nickel? Why do we always have two linebackers in the field? Go, explain it to me. Please tell me something. Give me some news on why the heck that's happening. I cannot, especially if we're a defensive back heavy team, which we are. We're light on linebackers still. It's really tough. It's really tough. Um, Let me ask you this. I thought Georgia was bold in a couple of moments here, especially late in the game. You know, I have to give Kirby Smart credit. That pass on third down when we didn't have a timeout, I would have expected him to run the ball and punt. But he's been shown to be weirdly aggressive in, in moments. Hasn't always worked for them. Brad Stewart is close to knocking that ball away. He doesn't cover it as well as we would want him to. Were you surprised at the Georgia off- offensive coaches? being aggressive in certain moments, even though it was a relatively conservative game plan. Yeah, they were aggressive, I think, actually consistently. If you look at Georgia, they didn't run a lot of screens. They were trusting their downfield passing against us on third down. It's first and 15 on that fateful last drive. The first play is not a run, it's a screen. Second play is a run, third play is a pass. Two things are going on here. One, I applaud them. I thought that was great, a, a great job by them in a situation where they could have burned 40 seconds off. They didn't. Two, for those of you that think Trash should be benched at all, the reason Georgia's passing there is because you have Kyle Trask. That's why they're doing it. They're taking an extreme risk because they do not want to give the ball back to your offense because they're throwing everything they can at you and they can't necessarily stop you. That's one of the best signs of respect. But here's something for you that's fun, Alan. It's third down and seven. You have Brad Stewart, who has not played with Sean Davis almost all day inexplicably. Brad Stewart is also not a good cover guy. Again, Let me just walk you through this. It's third down and seven. We're actually expecting a pass. Why don't you just put a corner out there? If you're going to play cover zero, we played no safety. We matched up across the board. They sent four guys out. We covered them with four defenders. Why are we not just putting a defender out there? Put them out there. Put your best man-to-man defenders. Instead, you got Brad Stewart. And do you know what Brad Stewart is guarding? He's guarding a preferred walk-on, Allen, who was supposed to be a safety. He's a white guy, preferred walk-on playing slot receiver for Georgia, who catches the pass that seals our fate. I'm a white guy. No offense to white guys. But this guy is not a five-star burner, Alan. He's not Freddie Swain. He's not any of our receivers. He's just a dude. A dude. But you know what Georgia did, Alan? They knew what we knew, which is the guess who can't cover? Brad Stewart. Now, he almost makes the play, but to me, here's a little bit of favor in Grantham's side. Playing man defense with blitzing there is a great call. I have no problem with that. 
you got to be able to make that play. Fromm throws off his back foot, floats it up there. No play is made. So again, combination here, right, of scheme and personnel. To be a great coach, you have to get both of them right. And let's assume, Allen, that call, that play was caught by, was on C.J. Henderson. You tip your hat and say, hey, great job. You deserve to win, right? You want your best players in there with a chance, with a chance to impact the game. So I want to quickly walk through some of these third down plays. I know that a lot of you are interested in this. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but I'm going to walk you through what happened. Third and 14, opening game. We're in a cover two zone we talked about. That's solely on Dean. Everyone else does their job. Football is a beautiful game because all 11 guys must do their job. That's an easy tackle. Play should be over. He misses. Third and 11, we're in cover one man. We drop Sean Davis inexplicably deep, Allen. There's no reason to do this in this play. He's way out of the play. Dean's one-on-one. Conversion. Third and six, cover one man. Again, all these soft man, not the cover one mans we'd like with Pressman. These are all cover one off the ball defenses. Bernie gets beat by the running back out of the backfield. Dean basically is just standing in no man's land on a zone blitz. Just totally wasted. Again, they're accounting for that play. They're counting on that to happen. They see Dean's in the game. They see him lined up inside. They expect him to blitz because we don't like him to cover. Most third downs, we actually played a lot of cover one man. We had some weird zone blitz rotation. We were always off the ball. And a lot of times our cover one, Allen, looked like a cover three. What does that mean? We had our outside corners funneling guys into the middle. So they got us a couple of times with the run play fake. They'd suck in one of our linebackers like Ventral Miller. Marco would be shepherding his guy, passing him off to the inside. There's no help. There's no drop from a linebacker. So I want to say two things. One, Marco was not a really bad game tackling. In coverage, Marco Wilson was just fine. Almost every coverage play he was on, Allen, he did the right thing. It was how he was being asked to cover guys, which was screwing us up entirely. So there's that. So then lastly, let's talk about this touchdown pass where you get the dead fish tackle by Marco, who again had a horrific game tackling. He at least seemed frustrated by it, but that was really, really poor tackling. Maybe we should take major rights advice and practice tackling. But you get that goal line play where you get, an, you, get a, you get a receiver that motions in to basically set behind the line. And then you get trading on the inside and you get Marco Wilson on the outside. The outside receiver runs a slant route. The inside receiver runs an out route. So we pattern match, which we talked about last week, which means our corner, in this case, Marco Wilson stays home and Trey Dean stays home on the slant. Except we miss a really big, important piece here. Trey Dean is supposed to hit, hit that slot receiver because he can, because he's within five yards. He's also behind the line. You're supposed to get a hand on that guy to alter his route. Trey Dean instead just stands there, Allen, as the receiver runs past him, hurting basically no one, allowing Fromm to complete this easy pass into the flat where Marco Wilson could have been a hero and saved the day with a tackle and instead decides to throw himself like a dead fish at Georgia where he then runs in for a absolutely crucial touchdown on third down. This stuff is crazy in high leverage games like this, in high leverage situations, because we've seen these things happening all year long. They continue to happen. So in the beginning, we asked this question, how much of this is on coaching? The answer is a lot. Could our personnel have done better? Yes, they could have. Do we have some holes? Yes, we do. Are we putting our players and the right players in the best positions to succeed? No, we are not. And Georgia owned us in that regard. In fact, it's very hard on film, Alan, to find times where you could say, wow, we really got Georgia on that play. We were earning our yards against them. We were earning every single yard, just scraping every yard out while they are just calling us every single time. You're going to do this. We're going to do this. You're going to do this. We're going to do this. So I felt like we were exposed. And the question I want to ask you is one that we got. So CJ and Marco, these guys that are supposed to be these great NFL man corners, have they just regressed? Is this a function of the coaching 
What do you what do you feel about the situation is? Because we thought sky high season, especially for CJ, and now it's kind of they're just guys on the field running around. I I would say almost all of it for me is the coverage and that what they're being asked to do. When you watch them um, in situations where they're being asked to cover down the field, they're doing a really good job for the most part. The actually the pass interference on CJ in the first half. When you look at it, it's a phantom call. He doesn't interfere. It looks like he maybe did because he's so close to the guy, but doesn't actually touch him. So I've been I've wondered the same thing myself. When you look at them closely, they're not blowing things all the time or getting beat over the top. Of course, if you're a corner, you're going to get beat. But they've been right where we wanted to be for the most part. They've just not been utilizing them like we would prefer. Correct. Well said. And that and I'll echo that entirely. They have not regressed. I think they've both probably progressed. They're totally being used incorrectly. Off ball coverage as if they're slower zone defenders, not getting hands on guys, not having contact on them. They're shepherding guys into other guys, but our defense doesn't have that kind of talent yet. We don't have linebackers to cover that way. We don't have safeties outside of Sean Davis that are helpful. We need to use these guys as we've been imploring all year long the right way, but we're not. So ways to improve. Ready for this? I don't know. Part ways with Grantham. Wow. That's ways to improve. And now you notice I didn't say fire Grantham. Even though I would fire Grantham from the coach, you can't as a coach start firing guys midseason because the optics of a college football coach is a sacred little community. And if you get a reputation as a coach who's just axing people midseason, people are not going to want to work for you. Even if you say, look, my goal is to get to be the best, right? That's my goal. Doesn't fly that well with this fraternity. So you got to wait till the end of the year and you let them part ways. Now, Dan is fiercely loyal. Grantham's been linked to other jobs. But for me, Alan, I'm done with Grantham. This is not reactionary. I think this is the benefit of you listening to this podcast, right? This is not a surprise to any of you listeners. This is not a one-game assumption, illustration, snap reaction. This is a continual situation we've been seeing, highlighting, talking about. It's not getting better. It's not good enough. It's got to go. I don't like it. He's not the kind of thinker I would want in this position. And the reason is, here are the ways to improve. We've said every week, get the strategy and tactics correct. That's been wrong. Recognize personnel issues and fix them before you play the best teams. That's been wrong. Stop playing various guys of safety that aren't good enough. That's been wrong. Stop playing in a nickel. You know, reduce Miller's use as a middle linebacker. We did, I will say, not put Miller so much in the solo middle linebacker role. We put Reese there more, which is effective against the run, Allen. And lastly, we come to this. We talked about some issues that are not Grantham related. That's talent. We don't have enough talent to consistently compete with Alabama, LSU, and Georgia. Can we beat them in a one-game scenario? Sure. We just don't have enough one-on-one talent. Grenard's a nice player, but Allen, their left tackle, handled Grenard pass rush one-on-one for the large majority of that game. He posed no problems for him. And this is what we talk about when we talk about Dan Mullen's ceiling and his floor. High floor guy. He's going to beat the guys he should beat, which he's been doing an exceptional job of, and lose to the guys he should lose to, which he's been doing. The path for, for Coach Mullen to do this better, Alan, in my opinion, is to get better players. The problem is, so far, no evidence exists that we are getting close enough, close enough to have enough of those players. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, there's some guys on the roster who are decently rated, who are younger. Do those guys come through? Remains to be seen. You're right about Grenard. I've loved him. He's been fantastic. He's a little undersized for what they're, we're asking him to do. 
And when you're play, going against a mountain of a man on the Georgia offensive line, you know, he said afterward he played like crap. I don't that may or may not be true. He might not be 100% healthy and not might have his same burst. Um but regardless, we didn't get it done along the defensive line. If we were terrorizing Fromm, guess what? Those third and long plays, he doesn't have time. When we got to him, he threw the ball away, was ineffective. That was the key to the game. On if you can basically do almost anything you want in the back end if you're getting to the quarterback on every play. We weren't really doing either. So when third and long came, they were probably like, cool, let's just throw it here. Uh, that's frustrating to watch. It, it, and it steals your soul as a defensive team to get these large down-a-distance completions done. It kills you. You're ready to get off the field. You give up a busted play. You give up an easy third and 15. You know, completions are going to come. You're not going to be perfect. But in those highly favorable positions, to give up that over and over again is really debilitating. So, again, on them, they didn't give up. They got down to the red zone. They didn't allow touchdowns repeatedly. But we should have gotten Georgia off the field much more than we did, even despite our lack of pass rush. And if you're going to call yourself DBU, Allen, let your DBs play man press coverage. LSU calls themselves DBU, and you know what they do every game? They play man press coverage. But this stuff's got to go. All right, special teams, remarkably solid as always. Incredibly consistent this whole year. We've said that. They have not missed the mark. You've right. got an NFL kicker for sure in McPherson. And you've got a great college punter in well, Tommy T. We see Tommy T, what he's excellent at is knowing his spot on the field. When Georgia tried to punt in a bad down and distance situation for themselves, their guy got a little, I don't know, gun shy and booted it six yards into the end zone where they could have really pinned us deep. Um, and so you can see right there in those types of situations, we usually come out with a really good scenario. At least you don't see Tommy panicking and punting it you know, 10 yards deep. Coaching corner, we're not going to talk about these first two. They're just noted here. So we've talked a lot about handling a game plan that you have and then aborting it or altering it. I will say that Dan Mullen had two plans. And this is, again, I think something that Dan maybe has more than Grantham. He comes in and says we had a plan if we were leading and a plan if we weren't. And clearly he went to the all-pass plan, which did, Allen give us a chance to get the ball back to tie the game. So I would give kudos to Dan adjusting in the second half and really going for it, and that was rewarded with two touchdowns in three drives. As a coach, a second piece of this is how do you handle your other coaches' game plans, and what does Dan do in the offseason, which we will, of course, be following. The six-minute drive we talked about, here's one for you. Were you in favor of us onside kicking or kicking it away with the three minutes or so we had left when we kicked off? I wanted to kick it away. I didn't want to do what we did. I certainly didn't want to onside kick it because you have enough time. You have two timeouts you're going to get the ball back with enough time if you stop them. Uh, I would prefer, especially in their alignment, just kick it out the back of the end zone. They're not going to, they're not going to have a return on. Uh, we gave them more yardage than I wanted to, end up not mattering. There you go. I actually liked the kickoff the way we did it because it gives you some kind of chance of getting the ball. Maybe they mess up. Maybe, maybe they freak out. They got the ball in the 34, 35-yard line. But I think in general, if you're in favor of the onside kick, I think you're definitively wrong. And the reason is, Teams now, Allen, get onside kicks 6% of the time. Six. So if you're thinking this is the 1990s, onside kick, maybe a good idea. You would get it one out of four times. 6% of the time. And in exchange for that, if Georgia gains nine yards, they actually could kick a field goal and put you out of the game 
because you're down two scores and they have a good kicker to do it. The absolute right decision here is to kick it away, get one stop on defense, get the ball back with two plus minutes in decent field position, drop down and score. Right. 100% correct. And I think just to kind of sum up this moment there at the end of the game, that that last sequence is going to haunt us a little bit. They give us a gift of a false start. It's first and 15. The fact that they converted, like kudos to them. I didn't think they were capable of that. Either the aggression to do it or actually the capability to do it. I thought for sure we were going to get it back. Now, whether we scored or not, who knows? You know, that's not a guarantee. But I felt really good about it when it was first and 15. So give them a lot of credit. Man, that pass to their tight end is going to haunt us for a long time. Yeah, very, very painful completion there to the to the old slot receiver. I, I gave them immediate kudos. I mean, as a fan, you tip your hat and say that's the right call. We've talked about that exact call before mm-hmm. to win a game, outright win. Team's got a quarterback moving the ball. Everything they should have done, they did, and they earned it. Frustrating, of course, with a lot of the ways we handled what we handled. All right, bright spots. So we lose Moon to a broken foot in this game pretty early on. I thought the Diabate, we've highlighted before, number 11, did extremely well yet again on the edge. He didn't make any impact plays with regards to sacks or anything else like that, but he also did absolutely nothing wrong on film, which is incredible in a game of that magnitude. Right, he consistently spot, yeah. did everything correct. He's clearly still undersized, but that's a guy that's more talented than the guys that are ahead of him. And I think as a freshman, you're already seeing that with how well he held up. I was very encouraged by his play. Yeah, me too. Um Bernie, who looked good, also injured for a large chunk of this game, doubtful for next week. We've talked a lot about Trask. I want to mention Freddie Swain again. Um, I chose him as my breakout player last year, and he basically didn't do anything all year. But you're seeing what he's capable of in this type of offense. Great route runner. Fantastic hands. Makes every contested catch. You know, when we looked at him in the middle of the field, Nobody in the middle of the field for Georgia could cover him. It was awesome to see him make play after play after play. I believe it. It catches. Fantastic. Talked about Pitts before. He's so dynamic. He's just scratching the surface of what he can be in the future, too. Um, Thought those guys played really well. Yeah, I echo all those thoughts. Uh, Really thought we had some bright spots. And again, I just wish there were more chances for players to make mistakes Two of their biggest plays, their passing plays, are blown coverages. The one on my boy, Sean Davis, who I love. Basically, the only bad play he made the whole game. Uh, you know, a continual theme with the Gators is busting coverages in big games and leading to free touchdowns, which hurts. Right. But a lot of, a lot of, like we said, a lot of individual players played well in this game. A lot of the players did all they could do against better competition. But the Freddie Swain one, I think, is the one I want to settle on. You know, last year in this game, Freddie Swain had two catches. All season long before Trask came in, every podcast we said Freddie Swain is wide open in the middle of the field. He rarely ever got the ball. He's a senior. He's given his all for the program. He's been a guy that's, I think, very undervalued by Florida fans in general. You hurt for him not to get that win. You know they wanted it. He finishes his career at Florida Allen with a touchdown pass. That's the last offensive play we ran against Georgia, but phenomenal job by him beating one-on-one coverage all game long. Just again, great guy to have that kind of result. Uh, But sometimes, you know, the win overshadows anything we do as individuals. Okay. Let's wrap this game up. Some final thoughts here. So 
before the season, you and I did our schedule prediction. We both predicted a loss to Georgia. I predicted, I think, a loss to LSU and a loss to Missouri. You were lost to Georgia and a loss to one other team. With the state of the programs ahead of us, you know, big percentage chance we're going to end up 10-2. and two. Now, again, we got to go play at Missouri in a noon kick. We're going to talk about that a lot next week. I don't know. Does Thinking about it in that perspective, does that make this thing less or more? Well, it makes it more and less at the same time, right? Less because like we opened the show with, we're doing everything we're supposed to do. Dan Mullen's doing everything we thought Dan Mullen would do. Beat the teams you should beat, lose to the ones you should lose to. But sometimes, Alan, you got to beat a team that's better than you, at least talent-wise. We had a rare chance in this game to really do that, and I think we had a chance with LSU too. So what hurts me is you don't always get good quarterback play. No matter who you are in college football, you spend a lot of time trying to find good quarterbacks, Alan. We have one now. Am I in love with them? Sure, I'm in love with them. The guy's amazing. I love guys that are good, right? It hurts that you could have won some of these games, one of these games, a marquee game. We didn't get either of them. And so now we'll go 10-2, and which we expected before the year. But that 10-2 and for me was a different 10-2 and with Franks. As I said in the beginning, I felt like our ceiling was kind of capped. I felt we couldn't win anything. With Trask, I felt like we could have stolen a marquee game from somebody. And stealing a game from your rival is big time, right? I'll still remember forever going to watch Ronzo beat Florida State when Bobby Bowden Field was Christian as Bobby Bowden Field. And it meant nothing for us, but I remember it. It was a moment. So beating LSU or Georgia this year would have been good. But for me... It stings more because there's mistakes that we made that were correctable, and it stings more because I always want to see the players lose the game, not the coaches, and I just feel like I'm going to look back on this year and think, I don't really know what we could have done. I don't really know if we could have played Pressman. I just don't know if those teams were really better than us on that day, and that's going to stick with me, I think, the longest. You're right. There's these high watermarks that your program doesn't get a chance to have a lot of, and yeah, I think the folks in the shape of this team has shifted so much that it's realigned our expectations that with Trask, we could win all these games. Now, you beat Georgia. That's a really great moment. And, and it puts you in the driver's seat to play in the SEC championship game, which, you know, if you win that, you're in the playoff. Now, I don't think that we're a good enough team to win those three games in a row. SEC title game, two playoff games. But at least there's that kind of hope. There's that excitement in front of you. It feels like the rug got taken out a little bit under from under this team. So that's where you feel the pain of you loss of like kind of that forward momentum and excitement. But we still have everything in front of us for a really, really successful season. Ten wins in the regular season is an excellent season, especially your only losses are to two top ten teams who are competing for a national championship. That's a very good season. I don't want to minimize that if that's where we land. Now, again, we got to finish the season. We got to take care of our business here. But there's that you mentioned that duality of I want to acknowledge that we still have potential for a fantastic season. And this stings because of how much we had in front of us. It does. And I think for me, the older I've gotten, the more I view Florida Gator sports or teams I root for as entertainment. And every year this happens, it's a death of entertainment for me. It's not, oh man, beating Georgia would have made my life fulfilled or winning an SEC title would have made me feel better about myself. Actually, none of those things are true. What it would have done is given me more entertaining games until this season was over, right? So some fans I know are different. I'm just giving you an insight into me. So now this makes 
Vanderbilt's game less interesting. It makes the Missouri game less interesting. It makes whatever bowl game we play less interesting. Now, I will say this. Some of you are probably banging against your headphones or your steering wheel or whatever you're listening, saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not over yet. It's technically not over yet. Georgia still has to play Missouri, Texas A&M, and Auburn. And all three of those teams, Allen, could present a problem for Georgia. They must lose the two of them. It's not out of the question. They're not playing a bunch of cupcakes. It's a chance we still get back in. That would, of course, be very entertaining for me. I would get a game against either Alabama or LSU. So the sadness for me is whenever your season kind of ends from a standpoint of like games that are intense and fun and mean something, I am thankful this year we had more of those games than we could have had, right? During Kentucky, it looks like, oh man, this whole year is going to be forfeiture. We wound up having quite a good time. And again, winning nine or 10 games every year is great, but you can see why Spurrier said, hey, Florida fans aren't happy winning nine or 10. I think that's true because oftentimes at Florida, you expect to be just like Georgia or LSU or Alabama, and you need to at least be coming close to a coin flip against those teams. In the past 10 years, Alan, we are not near a coin flip against the elite teams. We're still far away from that. That, of course, I think is a rightful frustration for all of us. Okay, James, why don't you get us ready for our national games? I thought for a second you might have done this live read, Alan. I thought you were going to jump in. Well, mybookie.ag, no one gives you more ways to win than they do. Uh, my bookie has the fastest payouts and better lines than any other sports book. If you join now, my bookie will double your first deposit. Use the promo code GatorNation to activate the offer. That's promo code GatorNation. Visit mybookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. And hopefully, you did not listen to my picks last week because I got trounced, Alan. I got trounced. Let's walk through the Week 10 national games in my my graveyard of misery here. So, yeah, I went 4-5. and five. You went 3-6. and six. So, Again, uh, don't promote this as gambling advice. Uh, you can listen. To, you can fade our picks, too. That would probably have won you some money. Okay, let's get going here. West Virginia at Baylor. So West Virginia 14, Baylor 17. Baylor comes nowhere close to covering. They don't, and I, and I will say in defense of both of our picks, if you actually counted our record on the ones we said we would have bet, we both had a winning record. So we'd said we wouldn't touch a lot of these. We were right. This is one of those we said I wouldn't touch because West Virginia had been more cagey of late, and that's true. They almost won this game. Does this raise questions for Baylor? Probably. They're clearly an overranked yeah, number 12 team. Baylor, like, I think, is a really good story. Yes. We're, they're about to enter the toughest part of their schedule, so we're going to learn a lot more about them. Georgia Southern 24 at App State. Number 20 App State, and they only scored 20 points. Georgia Southern with the upset. This is so disappointing for them, especially as they were planning on beating their just their chief rival in that conference. We talked about that being a good conference. We said that, but they were 17-point favorites. They were at home with a chance to play against South Carolina this week in a game they would have got a lot of attention in, and they fall out of the top 25 and lose. That's a frustrating result for them. That's tough. NC State 10, Wake Forest 44. Let's go, Demon Deacons. Yeah, you called that one. I went with NC State, thinking, hey, NC State's going to play Wake Forest tough. Wake Forest put the gas pedal down. That's a that's a nice program there at Wake Forest this year, playing well. Virginia Tech 20, Notre Dame 21. We both went under Dame. We should not have done that. Virginia Tech with a very surprising performance, I think. I'm going to reverse my meta strategy of 17-point favorites being good ones. Yeah, they, lo- they typically we lost them are. All. We lost them all. So next time I see that, I am going against it. Forget that. Notre Dame is regressing to where they probably are. I think, again, frustration there. And if you're Virginia Tech, Justin Fuente is making a case for himself. He kind of resurrected this team from the dead. They should have won this game. Notre Dame was very, very fortunate to come out with a W. All right, Kansas State 38, Kansas 10. Not not a great second uh, result here for the Jayhawks. They 
don't show up in this big game. I think Kansas State is good. I do too. Uh, I think it's time to start really paying attention to the coaching job going on out there. They've played a tough schedule. They've done very, very well. They're competitive in every game. Uh, They're getting better. Yeah, good result for them. All right, Utah 33, Washington 28. Washington blows another game. I saw a good article about Chris Peterson is supposed to be a coach who has a schematic advantage, so to speak. Him and Dan Mullen are kind of similar. Both known as really pure coaches, not great recruiters, kind of under-talented teams, but they do well. Really tough loss for them. They had this game. They threw pick six. They let it get away from themselves when they were in control at home. Huge win for Utah. All right. SMU 48, Memphis 54. This is a wild game. Memphis barely covers back and forth. Memphis was the better team on the day. Mike Norvell, a guy that I like, has been a hot coaching candidate. Is having his emergent year could be a candidate at a school that we know a good win for memphis college game day there everyone fired up that's like a program defining win big time win for them all right oregon 56 usc 24 oregon lays the smack down in this game yeah this is the end of clay hilton maybe the beginning of urban meyer there's been a lot of smoke on that if you believe it or not i think there's a lot of smoke there that makes a lot of sense it's a school that i think fits him and where he may go Uh, at any rate good good win from oregon mario crystal ball that's a great thing for them. That's a, he, I mean, they're getting better each week. They could potentially sneak into the playoff. They need a lot of help to make that happen. Either way. Yeah, it was good for them that Utah good result. won. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the USC, they've hired an AD. And this is so interesting with Urban. Would you make this deal with the devil here? If you got five elite years from him, would you take that deal if you're USC? Absolutely. Would you, would you go back and take Florida again? Between, sure. I mean, 100%. You take that every single time. And I think knowing that you're going to get five years, you maybe have a plan in place to have an exit strategy for him. All right, a couple games that we didn't select, but we want to talk about Colorado 14, UCLA 31. Don't look now, but Chip Kelly is in complete control of their Pac-12 destiny. If they win out, they will play in Pac-12 championship game. This team is getting better every single week. Maybe he's decided that he wants to coach again. Either way, he is slowly emerging out there. Yeah, big if, but... Interesting note about them. Nebraska 27, Purdue 31. Another really tough loss for the Cornhuskers. So here's another second-year coach in Scott Frost. Nebraska fans are still riding steady. A lot of frustrations there. Uh, Talent-wise, the team is behind. He's not doing anything to necessarily bump that recruiting way up. And I think, to me, I'm, I'm continuing to give Scott Frost a little pass here. His lack of excitement for this job was for all the reasons I think that are going on now, Alan. This is a very, very hard school to win at. Just very hard. He knew it going into it. He's feeling it now. It's going to be a long haul up for them, I think, to compete in the conference they're in. Right. And, you know, they're not getting blown out on a regular basis either. Unlike our next team, the Miami Hurricanes 27, FSU 10. Sadly, I wish we had some dirges to play here some mournful music. The Willie Taggart era is over. He has been fired. They ponied up the money, which I didn't think they could do. $20 million worth of buyout between him and his assistants, something around there. James, how are you feeling about the end of the Willie Taggart era? One and a half years into it, it's over. Yeah. And I think it's safe to say something we've suggested many times. He is the worst coach in the history of college football. Wow. I think that's safe to say. He's coached now over 100 games, and he has a losing record. He lost at a school where he had top five talent this year, composite-wise, and lost to teams that had 50, 60, 70th ranked talent. 
He's unorganized, undisciplined. The team is horrific looking. It led Kurt Herbstreet after the game to talk about, I didn't want to talk about Florida State anymore at all because they're basically a disgrace as a program. The wheels fell off here so fast, it's unreal. There were warning signs with a, a Hall of Fame coach like Jimbo Fisher doing anything he could to get out of there. So it wasn't like they didn't have issues. But to me, the fact that you and I both picked Florida State to cover a five-point spread maybe puts into question our expertise. What the heck were we What were we thinking? Well, this is more a look at can Miami score enough points in this game to get it done. They did, obviously. This is such an interesting moment, right? Firing a coach a year and a half in. But if you'd watched his first three games last year, if you were like a hedge fund manager, you would have ejected the stock immediately. You would have said, sell, sell, sell. Now, the general with college coaches that you would want to give them four years it used to be a five was kind of the minimum. That's getting shorter and shorter. You famously have a three-year rule, right? You want to see three years of data and you could be able to make a decision. So they only got one and a half-ish years of data. Do you think this was a premature firing or are you in favor of it? Oh, it was perfect. And it should have been done even earlier, honestly. The three-year test is is you get a maximum of three years. If at any point in time it's obvious that you're terrible, then you're gone. Uh, why these athletic departments are doing these huge buyouts, I have no idea. I can assure you that if I was an AD today, I would not be structuring contracts like that, especially from Florida or Florida State or a school where these people want to go to to win a national title. We've talked about this before, Alan. There's only so many schools you can win a national title at. And if you're one of them, stop giving these guys $20 million buyouts, right? Maybe if you're hiring, you know, Nick Saban or Bill Belichick, you got to do that. So that's foolish. But yeah, the three-year test goes pretty much like this. Take a look at three years of data. If the coach has done well enough to give himself three years, if he's at an elite program and he has not basically gotten himself to the playoffs or won his conference, he's never going to win a national title. Now, that's if you're at a school that's already a top 10, you can win a national title there. I don't want to hear about Clemson. I'm sick of hearing about Clemson. If you want to argue about Clemson, go back and look at them. They were not even remotely a top 10 school, Allen, when Dabo Sweeney got there. They were not. There's a reason why the word Clemsoning was an adjective that we all used, right? Right. Could be used as a verb too, whatever you wanted. But that was not true. So Dabo would have gotten more time. But if you're Florida, you're Florida State, you're Oklahoma, you're USC, you're Texas, all you need is three years. We've talked about it at length in this podcast. You definitely don't need a full three years if your coach is terrible. He's already proven he's not going to get there. That's the case of the way Taggart. Like you mentioned, if you're an investor, sometimes you can tell very early on that your investment was a bad one. Right. And, and this you is must a get out. Historically bad hire considering the talent level at FSU. This is historic underachievement. The amount of money that they paid to get him and then fire him is astronomical. This is a debacle on every level. Not just that he's not been a success. He's been an utter disaster. If I'm FSU, I would have fired him as soon as I could. And maybe this is the moment. There, You hear people talking about he didn't get full three seasons, firing him midseason to his second year. But if you were looking at what he put out on the field with what he had at hand, a lot of people want to blame Jimbo Fisher for those deficiencies. Yeah, of course, maybe you're not going to win a national title because there's some deficiencies along the offensive line. But guess who also has deficiencies along the offensive line? Dan Mullen. And you look at all the second year hires, Dan Mullen has had by far the best record. And he didn't walk into 
an amazing situation. I didn't walk into an awful situation, but I would say the situation Willie Tiger walked into was much more preferable and he lit the whole thing on fire. Okay. Let's talk about their next coach. Is there anybody out there that if they hired, you'd be scared and maybe who do we want them to hire? They're not going to hire this guy, but if they hired Urban Meyer, my life would be over because he would annihilate people at Florida State and it would not be good at all. Thankfully, that's not going to happen. Who do I want them to hire that's realistic is Mark Stoops. Yes. I would love for them to hire Mark Stoops. Mark Stoops has no real upside. He's a totally average coach. Everything about him is average. Please go there. That'd be fantastic. I yeah. think that's a possibility too, Alan, that they could sign. They'd him. be like an upscale Kentucky. They would be dangerous. Like you, you know, you wouldn't like take them like for granted. They'd be a solid team, but they wouldn't be churning out national championships. So, yes, I'm hoping that's the route they go. We'll see. Uh, this hire is very important for them. I hope that they bungle it. Okay, yeah, because I asked you this before. You like to, you said you like to live in a world where Tennessee is good, right? It's better games. Do you feel the same way about FSU? No, not at all. I hope FSU is terrible forever. It's a different kind of rivalry with Tennessee. It's like a, it's like a, a brother or a cousin or someone that you like want to beat. But when they're really good, their fans are awesome. Like they're intense. They love it. They're passionate. They care about it. Florida State's everything that's the opposite. Their fans are bandwagoners. They don't really care. They have to pay attention. They don't know what's going on. It's just different. Plus, it kills us in recruiting, whereas someone like Tennessee doesn't. So Sure, sure. But even just beyond that, I think if Florida State had the same fan like experience Tennessee did, I'd feel better about it. But when I, went, when I would go to Florida State, there's all the animosity you have between a rival, but it wasn't the same. I, I cherished the kind of SEC environment rivalry fan base they had. And I just don't with Florida State. So with Florida State, I don't care if they're ever good again. I definitely do not want them to be elite again like they were with Jimbo Fisher. That is a terrible, horrible experience getting annihilated by them. Hopefully that won't happen. There is not a obvious coach. We're not going to spend a lot of time right now talking about it. There's plenty of articles. Bob Stoops is the current guy they've offered a lot of money to, which I think is kind of funny, Alan, because we spent a decade plus doing that. I don't think they'll get him. A lot of other guys out there that are interesting. Not a lot of them have ties to Florida and the South, which I think is an issue. Lane Kiffin does. Probably don't want to go down the Lane Kiffin route when you've got a mess in your program. Uh, But at any rate, I don't think there's an obvious hire yet for them. Right. And when they do hire someone, we'll definitely evaluate it. Let's do the SEC roundup. Old Miss, the fighting Matt Lukes again. Alan, go on the road to Auburn. This is a close game. And they gave Auburn all they could handle. It's like the third or fourth game. Old Miss has been right there at the end. They lose 20 to 14. Yeah, not a great one for Auburn, but they're definitely looking ahead to the beer fish on their schedule, I think. So they almost got by doing that. Yeah, I think this is the example again of what Matt Luke is doing right versus. Mississippi State winning 54-24 at Arkansas, where Chad Morris is horrific. There you go. Just a total difference. Chad Morris will be fired. He will not survive this year either, I feel like. So you're going to have some coaching turnover in the SEC this season. Uh, UTSA 14, A&M 45. Nothing to see here. Right. A&M also gearing up for some bigger fish on their schedule. Yes. They had a great schedule this year, entertainment-wise. I mean, they just have so many good games. UAB 7, Tennessee 30, continuing their winning ways. Yeah, this is a good win for UT. UAB is not a bad program. Um, UT may be on the rise. We'll see. Yeah, it seems to be they definitely are. Vandy 7, South Carolina 24. Vandy, no showing here in this South Carolina game. Let's go ahead and talk about them. 
Vanderbilt is two and five. We are seven and two, of course. A 25 point spread in this game. We'll talk about whether that's large or not. Last year, we won 36 to 17. They've got a win over Missouri recently. Interesting data point for them. Uh, just to note their five year recruiting ranking 52nd. We're 16th. 12 returning starters, seven on offense, five on defense. Their coach, Derek Mason, already in his sixth season. That feels like a long time. Their OC, Jerry Godowski. I believe that's how you say his name. His first, but he's been on the staff for all six years. Defensively, their coordinator, Jason Tarver, his second. Been at the Raiders and 49ers. Vanderbilt, you look at them on offense. I'm sorry you had to watch this, James. What did you see? Oh, they're one of the worst offenses in college football. Uh, they're pass heavy because they they're way behind a lot and they're rather terrible at both running and passing. In fact, it's very hard to find anything they're doing well this year, which is what a two and five team would look like, but they are bad even by their own relative benchmarks. They had a couple of years there where they had either a quarterback or some good tight ends or some really good playmakers. They have none of that. They do give up a decent amount of sacks and throw a rather average amount of interceptions I would look for Vanderbilt to try their best to slow this game down as much as possible. I would expect from the beginning, Allen, full play clock usage, suck as much clock away, shorten the game, uh, limit our possessions. Florida defense, this is a game where Grantham's defense should work wonders. Uh, in fact, if you look at Vanderbilt, Allen, whether it's cover one, cover two, cover three, cover four, man, zone, they're terrible at all of them. There's really not a single thing that they're good at or excel against. So for Grantham, this should be a game where things look really nice. Things look really good. Uh, so, you know, not a whole lot to see here. In fact, this is definitely the worst Vanderbilt team I've evaluated on film. And we've done this almost every year that Derek Mason's been a coach. Right. And they were frisky last year. They gave us, obviously, you know, a run for our money. We won 36-17, but that game was close and they were winning for a while. Uh, this doesn't seem like that type of Andy team, obviously. Even with that weird win against Missouri, who seems to be free-falling as well. All right, you know, Vanderbilt offense, terrible. Vanderbilt defense, also terrible. Terrible both stopping the run and the pass. Don't really generate sacks or turnovers. What do you think they might try to do against us? They actually run a, a good scheme. You mentioned their defensive coordinator spends a lot of time in the NFL. I think he's a smart guy. They do play a lot of man defense, which is the right thing to do against spread offenses. But when you're not talented enough, you can't play man, you can't play zone, you can't do anything. So it doesn't really matter what they do on defense. They've been horrifically bad at it. The Missouri game was a total anomaly. Uh, I can't imagine we're going to be in that same position because we passed the ball so well. I would expect them to do what every other team has done, is load up all they can on the defensive end and play a lot of cover two man, two deep safeties, keep the deep balls at bay, make us continually throw seven to eight yard passes over and over and over again against tight man coverage. It's the right defense against a team like ours. Typically, we haven't talked about a lot, Alan, if teams are playing like two deep high safeties on you, you almost always run the ball. That's what you should do. We can't do it. So teams are able to do this. And again, it's a last note that Vanderbilt will do it too. But because Kyle Trask is so good, I would expect him still to be able to beat this kind of coverage, especially with our receivers who are so good, they get separation. On offense, we've been saying this every single week. At this point in time, we just have to keep taking what the defense gives us. I'm a bit concerned, Alan. We will not do that this week. I think there's a real shot that we try to run the ball a lot to attempt to establish some sort of running identity. I don't think that makes sense. Again, I would love to see something I know we're not going to see, which is different kind of route spacing, better bunching, better route combos where we're helping each other against man defense to get guys a free release and to hit bigger plays. I do not expect to see that. 
it will be interesting to see how effective we are running the ball. If we were potentially progressing like we thought we were against Auburn or LSU, that obviously didn't show up against Georgia. I I am predicting that we will run the ball because there'll be certain advantageous fronts and Dan Mullen will want us to do it. So it'll be interesting how many how effective we are, not just total yardage, but yards per carry. Penalties about the same. Turnover, same ratio, some injuries. We mentioned uh Moon is out, Bernie. I don't think you'll see him in this game. Okay. Vanderbilt week. Not the highest profile of weeks, but we're coming off a loss to Georgia. Last year, coming off a loss to Georgia, we had our worst showing of the season against Missouri. That was a decent Missouri team who would cook you if you let them. This Vanderbilt team probably isn't capable of that. This is a game at home. We shouldn't lose it. But other than just not crapping the bed after a week against UGA, what are your keys to this game? Yeah, that's it. I think the key is emotion, and you hit it right there. I'm not going to give any football keys because there aren't any. We're significantly the better team. This is an overmatched opponent. Emotion is the only thing that equalizes this. If our players come in feeling like the season is over, which a lot of our fans feel like, because as a fan, the season is, like we said, more or less over. As a player, it's definitely not. You're still playing football games. It's still fun to play football. You can still go to a New Year's Six Bowl. There's still things you're going to want to accomplish as a player. You're also technically not out of it. You need to keep winning. But emotionally, it's hard to come back after that Georgia loss. I expect this team, thankfully, to be emotionally high enough for a terrible, venerable team to get things going. But most importantly, Alan, I'll tell you he'll be ready to play as Kyle Trask. Every quote I read from this guy this guy is constantly engaged. He's not an emotional guy. He's locked in. I expect him to play well. Emotion's the key to the game to me. How about you? Yeah, you said it well. I'm glad that this is Vanderbilt and not Missouri. Even though Miss Missouri's team has not been playing well, they're much more dangerous theoretically than this Vanderbilt team. This game is at home. It's at noon. It's going to be sleepy in the swamp. I assume that the fan turnout is going to be low. Whereas if we won that Georgia game, you would at least had some bounce in the stadium. We would probably win by 50, you know, maybe not. But I would not be concerned at all. There is that slight concern, as you said, but not enough for me to really give it any thoughts. So for me, yeah, the keys to the game is that we come out early and we're somewhat productive. If we have miscues on special teams, if we do really dumb things, fumbles, etc., Maybe they hang around for a little while. They still are an SEC team. They do have a few guys capable of making plays. But overall, we're so far above them talent-wise and I think productivity-wise. Like This team has been productive in every game. Even if they haven't been lights out in every game, they haven't laid an egg since Kyle Trask has been out there. So, like I said, I'm not too worried about it. But it's weird to say... Do they show up and handle their business as the key to the game? But that's what I'm going to say as well. All right, James, I asked you for a score and think about, do you think that Florida's going to cover the spread? Yes, Gators win 42-10. I think that this is a technical skill matchup. This is the benefit, I think, of having, uh, like we talked about, a very consistent player at quarterback. Is Games like these are variable when your quarterback is variable. Trask is not. He's literally a machine. And if he continues to do that, which I expect him to do it, we're going to score a lot of points in this game. They're going to be far behind in this game. 
Grantham splits as will work in this kind of game. I would expect some turnovers. Uh, I'm going to go a, a big spread coverage win of 42-10. So you're not expecting any kind of garbage time touchdown backdoor cover from Vanderbilt? I wouldn't bet this game because I, I feel like, A, don't bet on your own team. B, it's a noon game, which is a disaster. And C, 25 points is a lot of points. Vanderbilt is terrible. They are terrible. I promise. I've watched them on film. It's disgusting. They're really bad. But it's still the SEC. They still somehow beat Missouri. That actually happened, right? It happened, but that was at home. So, no, I'm not worried about that. I think that we should be able to score, you know, if we get the ball 10 times, we should be able to score seven times. And I think if they get the ball 10 times, they should score twice. And that's kind of what I'm looking at. So you can go plus or minus one or the other, and you're still covering. So I'm going to bake in a little bit of the sleepiness of this game, you know, inherent to it when the the kickoff where it's coming this season. So I'm going to say 35-13 Florida. I like it. All right, then. Let's go to our Week 11 national games. Uh, Both of us predicting big wins over Vanderbilt. Let's see what the rest of the country has. It's a very, very good slate this weekend, of course, headlined by the number one versus number two matchup of LSU versus Alabama. Let's start with number 11 Baylor favored by only one point at TCU. That shows you, I think, Vegas' Vegas's relative uh, lack of confidence in Baylor, especially on the road. I think Baylor will win this game, but I think it will be close. That's reflected in this line. So at one point, if I'm going to pick Baylor to win, I have to take them. And this is where Baylor goes down. The game gets tougher. They're on the road. A lot of pressure on them to take TCU. My team, number 20, Kansas State, on the road against Texas. Texas, six-and-a-half-point favorites. This should be a good one. Yeah. Where's Texas at mentally, emotionally, after the wheels have come off? Defensively, I don't think that Texas is going to be able to stop Kansas State. So I think Kansas State wins outright. I'm taking Kansas State in this game as well, and I'm definitely taking them with six-and-a-half points. Texas plays a lot of close games against almost any kind of quality opponent. I love this line. This, to me, is one of the better lines of the week. Louisville at Miami. Louisville having a quietly great season from where they were. Uh, Miami favored by six in this one. Yeah, I don't trust Miami with any kind of line. I bet, or I guess I picked against them last week. I'll pick against them again. I'll take Louisville. Yeah, this is a game I definitely would not bet. I think I'm hearing yes, you say agreed. the same thing. You would not bet it either. Louisville's been feisty. Miami big off a win against a Florida State team that is not very good. I'm going to take Miami uh, riding that momentum. Number 22, Wake. Two-point favorites at Virginia Tech. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're buying what Virginia Tech is doing right now. They had a really nice showing against Notre Dame, even defeat. But... Wake has been really consistent. They've not had the kind of weird up and down efforts that Virginia Tech has. I don't know how you really bet on Virginia Tech at this point because they're so schizo, but I'm going to take Wake. Another game I wouldn't bet, but I am going to bet on Virginia Tech. I think they have turned a corner. They've been consistent in these past couple of games. They're at home. I think they're feeling good off that loss against Notre Dame. I think Wake is feeling pressure. I'm going to go with the team with no pressure on them. Number 18, Iowa. At number 16, Wisconsin. Wisconsin favored by eight and a half. This feels like a three-point game, so i got to take Iowa here. Yeah, this does feel like a game that should be pretty close. Iowa on the road, though, struggles to score. Iowa's defense tends to be pretty good on the road as well. Eight and a half feels like a big number, but I'm going to take I'm gonna take Wisconsin, uh, which feels wrong to me to do that. But <laughs> you I'm, just made I'm the case just, for Iowa. And I did. I did, and sometimes I do that, but in my heart I said, yeah, Wisconsin will get that. Missouri on the road against Georgia. Georgia, curiously, Allen, only favored by 16 and a half in this game. So are we getting the Missouri team from the beginning of the year or the end of the year? 
This is close to your 17 number. Are you going to reverse course here, James, and take Missouri? I'm going to take UGA. I am not going to reverse course. I feel like UGA is riding high after that game. I think they're going to be feeling really, really good about themselves. They're at home. Their fan base will be re-energized. They control their own destiny. They're expecting a playoff date. Missouri, on the other hand, seems to be going the wrong way. App State, fresh off a big loss against Georgia Southern, on the road against South Carolina. South Carolina favored by five and a half. This number is low enough that I'm going to take South Carolina. I don't know what we're going to get from App State here. This is a place where I think they were going to be so excited and they really, you know, just biffed it the previous week. I don't know if they're going to be ready for this game emotionally. I have not watched App State on film at all, so I, I can't. I definitely, again, would not bet this game. I, I tend not to want to bet teams I don't know. I have no idea what to expect here. The South Carolina result against Tennessee is so inexplicably head-scratching that you just wonder what are they going to do here. They didn't exactly crush Vanderbilt last week, so I'm going to go with App State in this game. Iowa State, the clones, as you like to call them, at number nine, Oklahoma. Oklahoma favored by just 13. Oklahoma, I think, is going to cover this. Now, I think it's going to be close for most of the game, but I think Oklahoma scores late to push this number. It's a little bit like the LSU-Florida game where it felt really close, and then all of a sudden you look up and they covered. So I'm going to take them. Iowa State's KG, Oklahoma at home. Where's their emotional you know, feeling, vibe right now? Do they still feel like they have a shot to sneak back into the playoff? I'm not sure where they are, but I'm with you. I'm going to take Oklahoma. Tennessee at Kentucky. Interesting SEC game. Kentucky favored by one and a half. I'm surprised that Kentucky is favored at this point. I'll take Tennessee. I, I'm not confident in them, but I'm not confident in Kentucky either. So if I'm just feel like I'm just picking this straight up, so I'll go Tennessee. Tennessee has more talent. I feel like they're playing better than Kentucky. I would not bet this game, but I'm going to take Tennessee as well. And I guess my early season statement of Pruitt getting them in a better place maybe is coming true. This game would go a long way towards making Tennessee fans feel much better about well, this we'll season. We'll get them on the road towards bowl eligibility for sure. And just consistency on the back end, I think. You want to beat a team like Kentucky if you if proving you're getting better with talent. We'll see what happens. Number five, Penn State. Big spot for them here. Minus 6.5, undefeated on the road against number 13, Minnesota. Also undefeated, big time, big 10 show. Yeah, we've got two undefeated matchups here at the end. Both teams 8-0. This is a, actually pretty rare that you get two of these games in one weekend. Minnesota has been really fun this year. I'm pulling for them, but they're not ready to play at Penn State's level. The fact this is home is interesting, but six and a half feels like I could never take Minnesota with this line because I don't think they're going to win the game, so i got to take Penn State. Yeah, Minnesota's playing great football. They are theoretically on paper not ready for this game. Penn State can give you some weird results, especially on the road, but I'm with you. The talent level still feels large enough that six and a half should be something Penn State should be able to get done. But again, I would not touch that one. Too many unknowns. Number one, LSU travels to number two, Bama, where guess what, Alan? Bama is favored by six and a half over the number one team in the country. This is fun. Uh, You know, I, I think just last year, you'd seen enough of LSU, Alabama, and so had most of America. Uh, CBS chose Notre Dame, Georgia as their one primetime game, eschewing the traditional LSU Bama game. And now here we are, LSU, a completely different team. This number, I think, is a little bit of reflective of the past, but this is not the same LSU team. I'm going to take them getting those points. Do you think LSU wins outright or you think Bama wins the game? I think LSU wins outright. I think it's. It's a little 
coin flippy to me, especially. Well, the big reason I wouldn't take Bama is because I don't know what I'm gonna get from Tua. But I do think LSU's going to win the game, even on the road. And getting the points is just a little too much for me. So this is the best matchup of the year, in my opinion, Alan. And I'm going to go one step further. This is one of the the best college matchups for me in the past decade. And I'm going to tell you why. You have Joe Brady, who's basically an NFL coordinator, a a forward-thinking NFL coordinator, against Nick Saban, who is an NFL defensive coordinator, a forward-thinking NFL defensive coordinator. This is why I love football. This is a chess match 101. Nick Saban not playing with this traditional strong defense, yet LSU will be going against an NFL-style defense for the first time all year that will be ready to handle their concepts. They're not going to concept Alabama into something. If they're going to beat him, they're going to have to do what Trevor Lawrence did, which is make big-time plays in big-time moments. I'm just stoked about seeing it. I don't know what's going to happen. I think either one of these teams can win, but I'm really excited to see how Joe Burrow and LSU fares against a team that's schematically ready to face them. Should be awesome. It's so different than the LSU-Bama games of the past, which I actually thought were so boring. I didn't even want to watch them because both teams are so game manager-oriented. This is everything I love about football. It's what's happening in the NFL on a week-to-week basis. It's what happened with the Ravens-Patriots last night. It's so fun to see these styles go against each other. With that being said... I think LSU's defense at this point in time is just too weak. It's much weaker than Bama's, in my opinion, for this kind of game. Bama's at home. I don't think they're ready to get this done yet. Uh, I'm going to take Alabama with a six and a half. This game could be wild. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, my hope is that we have two a healthy, you know, healthy enough that he is close to, you know, kind of full potential for him. Michael Divinity, I think, was kicked off LSU's team today. Another little notch in that direction that you were talking about. I I wouldn't bet this because I don't know to his health. If you could tell me to his health, I'd feel much more confident one way or the other. Um, having to pick here on Monday, I got to go with LSU. I'm really looking forward to it as well. And again, this game had gotten so stale. So kudos for both these programs up in their game offensively to where this is such a must-see game. All right, we are now joined by our special guest, the one, the only, Justin Seitz, former manager for the basketball team, our resident basketball expert. We get to talk to him every year. Justin, what's up? Thanks for shopping by. What's up, guys? Good to be back. Good to be a friend of the program. Uh, right in time for Gator fans to say, at least we have basketball season. And I think they have a lot to look forward to this year. And if you recognize that voice, he is the opening voice of the Gator Nation wow. football podcast. Celebrity. Celebrity yeah. in his own right. Yes. All right, Justin, Mike White in his fifth year. We talked about this last year. We said, last year will be nice. Whatever happens, happens. But this year, this is the year that will prove if he's a good enough coach. No more players from Billy. He's got everything he could want. Flying high in the preseason radar. Tell us about this particular team and how we're breaking down this year. Who are the new faces? Who are going to be the key contributors? What do you got? Yeah, like you mentioned, this year is really the year that everyone has pointed to as kind of the litmus test for Mike White. He's in his fifth season. He has an overall record at UF of 89 and 53. And over the past several years, he still had some remnants of Coach Donovan. Kayvon Allen was a holdover from the Donovan era, guys like Kavarius Hayes. So this is finally coach Mike White's team and I think the question here is now what can he do with the talent that he has on this team and there's a lot of high expectations for this team in general 
Tell us about the freshmen. We had a, one of the best recruiting classes we've had in quite some time at Florida. Who do you like? Who are you not liking? Where are you at? Yeah, we have, you know, one of the best crop of newcomers that, you know, we've seen in a while here. I think when you're talking about newcomers, though, you have to first start with our grad transfer, Kerry Blackshear, who is probably the most coveted player on the market in the offseason. And the Gators were able to land the Orlando native coming from Virginia Tech. And this guy is ex- experienced, 6'10", big man. He played um, in big games. If you remember, he had 18 points and 16 rebounds in the Sweet 16 against Duke, the best team in the country last year. So he's been there. He has experience. He's a talented, skilled big man, which we have not had since, um, like you could go back all the way to Coach Donovan's era. And that, I think, is one of the things that people have a little frustration with Mike White and his offense and how it's looked inept at times. And I would attribute a lot of that to not really even having a big man that we can rely on. When plays break down, it's good to be able to go to a guy who who can go and get you a bucket. So I think he brings that. He brings experience and leadership. And then as far as the freshman newcomers, um, this is one of the best recruiting classes that we've had in a long time. Um, the headliner is Scotty Lewis, who is a top 10 player in the country, five-star McDonald's All-American um, people are really high on his athleticism, his versatility. He's a really long 6'5 wing player um, who's a great defender. I have seen him play a little bit in the offseason here and in the exhibition game recently, and I would just temper my expectations a little bit. Um, he's not going to be Brad Beal. Um, people have tried to make that uh, comparison. I don't see him having the scoring ability that Beal had. And even though Beal got off to a, a slow start, he uh, he picked it up. I don't know if Scotty Lewis has those offensive abilities that Beal had. Um, our other guy, Trey Mann, he's a Gainesville native. James, we went and watched him play last year. Uh, he's He can go and get you buckets. Um, think... I don't, I don't want to throw the name Steph Curry out there, but he can create his own shot. He has a really good feel for the game, and he can shoot it from deep. He also has great celebrations, um, at least in high school he did, after um, his offensive uh, prowess and making long shots. So, uh, And then the one that almost gets forgotten about, who's still a top 50 player in the country, is Omar Payne, a 6'10", long, lanky defender, really athletic, maybe not as skilled offensively. Um, think maybe a guy like Kavarius Hayes, but hopefully he'll progress a little bit more than Hayes. Okay, so you mentioned Scotty Lewis. I think one of the things that people are really high on him about is not just his athletic ability, which is top notch, but the way he might fit into this team defensively, everything else, which speaks to a larger kind of question about our culture last year. Uh, there was an article in The Athletic which kind of hinted at lots of things, didn't want to say anything outright, but basically everyone on the team saying the culture last year, the environment, the feeling team wasn't good this year. It's way better. Do you think that's a little bit just kind of like, Oh, it's a new team. We're happy now. Or is there some real validity to that? Yeah. I think when looking at this team, I was first excited by all of the talent that we saw across the board. But as I've come to hear and see some things in the off season, this is a team that really seems to love each other. They're competitive. They love to play basketball. And some of the, the guys who sort of dragged people down the last few years are out of the program. Um, 
you know, I think there was issues with guys like Kayvon Allen and um, who was supposed to be our star player who never really took a leadership role, never really seemed like he wanted to be there. And from all accounts that I've heard, he's back in Arkansas, you know, living at home. So um, I think this year you bring in a whole different culture, again, led by guys like Blackshear and the sophomores who we haven't really even touched on yet, who have have accepted the leadership role and are running with it. And, um, you know, I think they're doing things, you know, in practice and encouraging one another and really being competitive. And, and there's just uh, a real good camaraderie within the team. Now, it's easy to say that at this point in the season, because we haven't even played a game yet, you know, what happens when people don't start getting minutes, you know, then we'll find out what these guys are made of. In that article that you referenced, uh, Mike White did an exercise in the preseason where he had everyone write out how many minutes they expected to play and how many points they expected to average. And I think the results were a uh, um, a world record for uh, longest game ever played with the highest amount of points scored. So, yeah, when you're thinking about this team, like your excitement level, right? So I don't know if this is the most talented team we've ever had. Could be. But I'm really looking forward to this team because it has so much returning talent. And I think stylistically, it could be really fun to watch. Like on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your excitement level for this team? Yeah, I think this is as excited as I've been uh, for a Gator basketball team since the, the 2014 team where we went to the Final Four, led by guys like Scotty Wilbekin and Patrick Young and, and Casey Prather and Willie Get in that class. So... Um, I think we're as talented as we've been since those guys, and I think we just have the right fit of, of players and people. Um, and the question is just, will we, will, be, will we be able to put it all together and, and you know, make this team gel and be a force to be reckoned with? You know, some people still question Mike White and his ability as a young coach. Um, even the guy sitting across from me on a Facebook post January 5th said, it is officially time, James, to question Mike White's ability as a top-level basketball coach. Offensive structure, lineups, yikes. Do you stand by this? I do stand by it, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think this is what this year does. And, you know, if we were doing a, a podcast on basketball, that's where we would start, Justin, is looking at what kind of offense does he run? How efficient are we? Are we getting the, the personnel decisions correct? Are we playing the right types of defense? I think that the thought for Mike White is if he gets the right players, they're going to naturally do what he wants to do. And that may be true. We're going to find out this year because I think you would say we have a lot of options for a starting five. We have a lot of different styles we can play with. In fact, one of the challenges might be resource management. How do we employ the guys that we have? So what do you see our our starting five potentially settling in on, and then who do you see our leading score being? Break down kind of what you think this team is going to is going to be successful at. Yeah, and I I want to get at basketball is different than football. It's not quite as much of a chess mat- match. So really, it, it's pretty simple. It comes down to can you get your best players in situations where they're set up for success and where they can score. Um, so we've seen Mike White and hit some of his offense be a little bit stagnant at a time, I would go back to the fact that we had Kavarius Hayes as our center for the last four years. The guy could hardly catch the ball. And, you know, we run a system of offense that's kind of 
based through initiating through our, our big, him setting screens, him rolling to the rim, him catching the ball at the high post and being a threat to score. But as far as this team goes, I, you know, from the exhibition and what we saw, um, we're going to be led by our sophomores. Andrew Nembard, he started every game last year as a freshman, had a 100, 194 assists, which I think is a freshman record for the, for the Gators. Noah Locke, who um, he'll also start at a wing. He had 81 threes as a freshman, which is another freshman record. Keontae Johnson, um, who will play the four, who's just an athlete. Um, he he averaged a double-double in the SEC tournament last year and into the NCAA tournament, so he came on very strong. He's someone I'm very excited to see um, even progress more. And then the other question is who's going to start at the wing? You know, we talked about Scotty Lewis as the most heralded guy, um, but it, from all accounts that I've heard, it looked like it might be Trey Mann, who with his ability to score might be the the – third guard and then obviously Kerry Blackshear uh, Jr. who will be anchoring this team in the post and who will get the bulk of our minutes I expect him to play 30 plus minutes a game along with Nembard too as our point guard 30 plus minutes and I think Kerry Blackshear will be our leading scorer and most likely our leading rebounder um, almost a double double type guy now you've got a breakout player that is not going to play this year tell us a little about who that is (laughs) I was able to see uh, a transfer from Louisiana Tech, uh, Anthony Deruji, who I'm excited about next year. Really athletic. Uh, he has, you know, just kind of a high motor, and he he looked good in what I've seen. But we also have just a couple other guys who are, aren't going to play this year. Another transfer from Cleveland State, Tyree Appleby, who's another a scorer, and um, so those guys should be exciting to see next year. I think we're entering an interesting two-year period here. You could make a case, I think, Justin, where this team is not just going to be like a Kentucky team where they play one season and disappear. There's a real chance that you have a year or two-year window to be good. Team will look different next year. But for this year, let's get down to the good stuff. Let's get down to the, the season prediction. So last year you said, quite famously, that the lows would not be lower than the season before that which both Alan and I had a raised eyebrow to, and the lows were, in fact, pretty low last year. But to give you credit, you drilled exactly where that team would finish. You said they would be out the first week of the tournament, and that's exactly what happened. First round, exact prediction correct. Uh, your predictions have been very good, in fact, since I've known you preseason. So for the listeners out there, you should take serious consideration of what Justin is about to say. This team has a lot of hype. They're an almost consensus Final Four pick. What do you see happening this season? Yeah, and even before, you don't have to necessarily like nail, like, okay, this is a Final Four team, potentially. Oh, but give us like a seed line, too, in this prediction yeah. and where you expect us to finish in the SEC. Yeah. Well, I will say this, too. I did say we would not have as high of highs and as low of lows. What I should have said is our variance would not have been as high last year as it was the year before. And that is actually a correct statement because we kind of sucked all year last year. So... Um, very, very low, uh, or not as much variance, but just kind of stayed low. Um, this year, I see this team winning a lot of games. Um, I think our non-conference schedule is, is, is a good one, but it's not quite as daunting as it's been in the past. Um, you know, again, we play FSU, who I don't, know if we, I don't think we've beat in five years, maybe six. Um, would love to get that monkey off our back. UConn, Butler, Providence, uh, U- uh, ranked Utah State team, and Baylor. Um, so I think we'll have a chance to win a lot of games. Uh, I went through, and, and the, also the SEC is probably not quite as good as it was last year. So 
pretty much consensus. But really deep, expecting maybe seven, eight teams in the tournament. Yeah, still, yeah, what I've seen about seven, eight teams in the tournament, but um, probably not quite as top-heavy, but some good competition. Um, but consensus, it's either Kentucky or Florida's league to lose. Um, they'll kind of be battling it out uh, throughout the season. Um, so looking at it, I kind of see us finishing around 23-8, and 24-7. Um, you know, with obviously the possibility of better than that. Uh, and I think we'll probably come in at like a two or three seed. Um, hopefully riding off a good SEC tournament showing. And from there, who could say? <laughs> I mean, what is the actual ceiling of this team? I mean, you, you look at last year's team, if like everything breaks right for them, they could maybe make an Elite Eight. That would be like the dream season. What is the absolute ceiling for this team? Yeah, I think this team is... Well, this kind of frustrates me a little bit because going into the offseason, I really wanted to pick Florida as a dark horse Final Four contender. But now everyone's picking them. So they are talented enough to go to the Final Four. And if I'm going to make a prediction, I got when we have a team that's talented enough to go to the Final Four, I got to say that the Gators, at the end of the year, are going to go all the way through the Final Four to the National Championship where they will play... Michigan State, in the 20th year anniversary of our loss in the 99-2000 season. And hopefully we'll, we will be able to avenge that loss. That would be a painful anniversary if we do that again. Now, Justin, <laughs> I, I couldn't quite figure that out. Are you picking a win or a loss in the national championship game? <laughs> <laughs> a win. National champs. I love it. So this but is big. That you legitimately, and we're kind of kidding around here, but you legitimately think this is a national championship level team. Yeah, I I think you'll have to. A lot will ride on how well the freshmen progress uh, throughout the season. Will they get a lot better? Will guys like Scotty Lewis, who should be a top ten player in this class, will he take the next step? Will Trey Mann um, be able to, you know? compete at this level to, to get you there but yeah I think whenever you look at college basketball it's such a hard thing to predict um, clearly no one's ever had a perfect bracket but you just look at is this team talented enough and are they well coached enough to be able to get all the way there um, so you know yeah all joking aside you never know I mean we've seen great teams we bounced in the first round second round I mean, we saw Virginia lose to a 16 seed but I think they are talented enough to make a deep, deep run in this play, in this uh, tournament this year. So it sounds like, as a consensus to put a bow on this, you've got us maybe slightly underachieving over the course of the season, being a two or three seed, which is well within the realm of expected value, but not having a killer regular season, but figuring it all out in the tournament and then going on a nice, a nice deep run. This year in basketball, if you have not woken up to it yet, is a deep year for top teams. You've got a lot of top teams, especially Michigan State being one of them. I think in other years, Justin, Florida might even be like a national championship favorite. Hmm. But this year, good year for this top five or six teams, I feel like, to compete with. Yeah. Um, there may not be as many like headline guys like Zion Williamson, but you look at the, the top four teams in the country are Michigan State, Kansas, Kentucky, and Duke. So Blue Bloods are there. They're talented. Um, some uh, some would say they're even better because they have more experience this year 
than you know the freshman laden teams that we've seen in the past few years. And that's what I think will be interesting is we're kind of the younger team, maybe on the block in some respects, with some veteran leadership. We can't close out this podcast without leaving you with something that all of you are going to hate, I promise. When watching the exhibition game with Justin and his brother, his brother Steve Seitz told us something that I'm now going to tell all of you, which will curse you, I assure you. Watch Blackshear on the court. His left heel does not touch the ground. Never. Ever. You can thank me later for cursing you because I assure you that every movement you watch him make now, you will stare at his left field and you will be absolutely befuddled that it does not touch the ground. This is not some biomechanical thing. What Steve told us, his dad wanted him to have strong calves. He walked on his toes his whole life and apparently on his left leg, that heel never touched the ground. Never. Not even when he's shooting a free throw will you see his left heel on the ground. Okay, well, we'll look out for that and for the Gators to have a really fun year. Thanks so much, Justin, for coming. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, anything else for you, James, before we close it up? I've got nothing else. Hopefully you enjoy today's podcast. We covered a lot of stuff, coaching, scheme, et cetera. Uh, of course, as always, keep the questions coming. You know, Each week we do fill a lot of the podcast time with questions or things people will pose to us on Patreon, on Twitter, on Facebook. We love to address some of the big questions you have and even some of the micro questions you have about this guy playing versus that guy or this scheme versus that scheme but uh, hopefully this podcast helped to put into perspective a couple of of thoughts that were out in the community and you got to hear our thoughts on them and again as always keep the feedback coming it's what keeps us producing the content you enjoy all right everyone thank you so much hopefully we're talking about a nice clean win against vanderbilt we'll talk to you next week